What is up, my crew? Welcome to another Wild Wednesday, and I am your host, Chase from Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. Josh is, of course, not here today. This is just solo dolo hours. What hour this is? You know, they say, baby, I'm jealous of the pictures that you like. Oh, Slayfest! Slayfest, everyone. Well, welcome back. Got a jam-packed episode for you guys today, by the way. It's going to be awesome. Um, Yeah, gave you guys a little bit of a break last week once we were doing, you know, the kind of differences between the film and the book of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. And then this Sunday, man, we kicked it off with a bang with Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And I know it kind of starts off a little bit slow, guys, but especially this episode that's coming up on Sunday that is going to be one for the books. It is really awesome. Um, But yeah, so today, kind of what we got uh, for you, a lot of really cool stuff is going to be about the prime minister of the muggles and the ministry uh, ministers and magic in the previous ones. Uh, And the reason we're going to really dive into the previous ministers and magic is because it deals a lot with a guy called Ulick Gomp. Uh, And he was a big... Uh, big uh, player in the previous ministry of magic uh, because you know we talked about how fudge was getting sacked uh, because he didn't listen to albus back in goblet of fire and of course basically all he did uh, last book and last film uh, for harry potter and the order of the phoenix was did everything in opposite contradiction of albus dumbledore which led to his sacking because now we have uh, of course the dementors are attacking london and all these areas in the muggle realm and also now you have giants that are attacking everything in the muggle realm which you know fudge didn't make the alliance with giants well uh it's going to relate a lot for today because you know we talked about that guy last episode that was in the portrait uh with that sticking charm that they couldn't get down that had that same charm as uh Sirius Black's mom, and he was basically acting as kind of like an introducer or like a liaison that was there, and they couldn't figure out how to remove that portrait, and he was a big, big part. Uh, Well, actually, that guy was Ulick Gomp, and who that was was the first minister of magic. So today, got a real treat for you. We're going to go through each minister of magic, and uh, today is going to have some really cool parts. So we'll have kind of like three parts uh, to today. First part, talking about all the previous ministers of magic in history. Uh, The second part, we're going to really dive into Spinner's End and uh, Severus Snape. And you're going to really get to hear his back history. Also, his back history with the Evans, which, uh, you know, Lily Potter, uh, her maiden name was Evans. So you can see where that's kind of going there. The last part we will talk about is the Inferi, which is going to play a major part in this book. Um... And as far as that goes, we won't give a whole lot away because, you know, one of the major, most famous practitioners uh, of the spell that fights off in Fury uh, happens a lot later on in this book. So with that being said, guys, uh, I am Chase from Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. Uh, Let's get this kicked off today and give you some interesting facts about Harry's world. So um, let's do this. 
So uh, starting in the beginning, I'm going to read you a little bit of a quote. So this all kind of occurs on page seven of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, just to kind of give us a little bit of a background um, so you can hear about the guy that was in the portrait that I just mentioned for you. So it says here, so he was instructed his private secretary to take down the portrait of the ugly little man who announced Fudge's arrival. To the Prime Minister's dismay, the portrait had proved impossible to remove. When several uh, several people, a builder, a hist art historian, and a chancellor had all tried unsuccessfully to pry it from the wall, the Prime Minister had abandoned the attempt and simply resol resolved uh, to hope that the thing would remain motionless uh, and silent for the rest of his term in office. Occasionally, he would even see that he had sworn that he saw out of the corner of his eye the painting yawning or else scratching at his nose even once or twice, simply walking out of his frame and leaving nothing but a stretch of muddy brown canvas behind him. And that's on page seven where it talks about uh, the person that's in that camp in that canvas. And the person that's in that canvas is Ulick Gomp. Uh, Ulick Gomp, who was the first minister of magic. So let's go through kind of our history. Take a little flashback in time because we can bring it back. <laughs> exactly. Bring it back like that. <laughs> yeah. Let's bring it way back. So the first minister of magic was actually Ulick Gomp. So he was born sometime before 1690. So on a lot of these guys, you're not going to see an exact year because they were so far ahead that it wasn't written, recorded in the exact day they were born. Um, so a lot of these are like born before or born this time. So just so you all have a heads up on that. But so Ulick Gomp, he was born before 1690. He was pure blood and a half blood, uh, chief warlock of the Wizard Gamut. He was also a member of the British Ministry of Magic. His family members were Hesper Black and Gomp. So um, Hesper Black eventually became Hesper Gomp. That's her maiden name. And then Gomp, actually, they don't know what his father's first name actually was. Uh, so it just says Gomp, according to Pottermore. Uh, but he was the first minister of magic and held the title from 1707 to 1718. He joined the Wizards Council and became a member of the Wizard Gamut in 1707. In 1707, um, the council actually, uh, uh, he was the first British minister of magic, but he was known for policing a fractitious and frightened community because what was going on here was during this big time, and this is going to be setting a big kind of message and tone for our episode today, is what was going on during this time is you had a lot of animosity and a lot of um, fractioned behavior between the muggle in the wizard community. So they didn't like each other at all. Uh, you also had a lot of the Salem witch trials occur a little bit down the road as far as that goes. Um, but it was just a lot of opposition, animosity um, that occurred. So basically, Ulick Gomp was in the time where he was trying to bring all these communities together and it just wasn't really working, uh, which really happens a lot later on 
uh, all throughout these ministers and magic, uh, even up into the point, you know, not all the way up into fudge, but say, you know, about 50 years before that, you were still having problems, even with magical creatures and that sort of thing. Um, so uh, with that being said, he actually established the magical law enforcement uh, during his term of ministry. He actually outlawed the three uh, unforgivable curses, which is the Cruciatus, Imperius, and Killing Curse, and he dubbed them all unforgivable. So that's where that came from. Uh, the Leaky Cauldron's fate, actually, for a while, was about to go out of business, and it's actually because of him that it actually survived. Uh, so all of Diagon Alley, actually, at one point, was about to go out of business because of all the controversy that was going on between muggles and wizard kind uh, because during this time you had a lot of witches and wizards that were actually being persecuted um, and so because of that there was a lot of uh, shops and that sort of thing shut down and actually all of Diagon Alley was shut down at the time but because people loved it so much they figured what they could do is use it as a wizard safe haven and it was Ulit Gomp that actually proposed the idea that the landlord that was of the Leaky Cauldron could use it um, for personal use as a safe haven for witches and wizards, and he would allow her by herself to actually open it uh, to the public, and she could have very few workers there uh, that were, uh, you know, magic workers uh, there. But because of that, because it actually survived due to Ulit Gomp, they actually named a beer after him, and and it was uh, Gregorus is how they say it. I want to make sure I say this beer right, but it's called Gamp's Old Gregorus, uh, and it actually was invented uh, during 1707 and 1718. It's a wizard brand of beer that was named after Gomp, uh, the first minister of magic, um, but actually it is said that still today it was so disgusting <laughs> that there was actually a prize given to whoever would be able to drink a pint of this and it didn't occur until 2014 that this was ever accomplished. Um, 100 uh, galleon prize, which is still pretty good for drinking an entire pint of beer. Uh, but it wasn't accomplished until 2014. So uh, as far as that goes, you know, he his biggest thing was he was trying to kind of get muggles and witches and wizards to work together. But because of that it had a lot of issues actually because the leaky cauldron uh, thought so much of him he actually had a portrait there for a while but because all this controversy was going on what actually happened with that portrait there is um, it is said a troll got loose and actually uh, tarnished all of the leaky cauldron and it set fire and the embers were even on the painting but before the entire leaky cauldron caught fire, um, they were able to get the painting out, and it said only the embers got the sides of the painting. So it's still not really known uh, where that is today, um, but this was in 1612, was Gomp uh, permitted refugee members of the magical community to come to the leaky cauldron and um, use it as a safe haven there. 
But the leaky cauldron, just so you know a little bit about it, it is located in Diagon Alley. It's located on Charing Crossroads in London, England, in Great Britain. Uh, the owners are Daisy Dotteridge, uh, Tom, and Hannah Abbott. Um, and it is located uh, in Nocturne Alley. So um, the rear of the pub actually opened to a chilly courtyard. Uh, the pub was actually built originally by Daisy Dotteridge who was the first lady in early 1500s, uh, and it served, the pub served as a gateway between the non-wizarding world and Diagon Alley. Um, it contains a bar, uh, several private parlor rooms, and a large dining room. Uh, the Leaky Cauldron actually, to Muggles, actually appears as an old broken down shop um, on Charing Crossroad. And this, however, was not the case, of course, and it was uh, always concealed by the International Statute of Secrecy. But um, muggle visitors, it is said, actually, this is really surprising. If a muggle did wind up finding the place, they were not welcomed, but they were not turned away either. So they actually did have some muggles there. Percival Shucklehorn, uh, he is known as a British wizard that was a professed adventurer. In actuality, it's said that he was really just more of a poacher, <laughs> and uh, he actually was caught hunting Graphorn illegally um, in the 1920s, which they're an endangered species during that time, um, and this was actually in the Austrian Alps. Um, he actually was reported when a lady, Laura Thorne, uh, who was um, a muggle and worked for the ministry um, as a Magi zoologist, but she was investigating Yeti sightings there. And what she did was she was had some suspicion that he was actually poaching these graph horns um, illegally. And what happened was she put a jinx on his tent uh, that turned it back into a port key, and he was transported back into the ministry and then was put on trial from there. But the reason he was out there hunting these graph horns is he believed that uh, their horns that are actually on their uh, on their body were able to be used in invisibility potion. And it's actually claimed uh, that he was actually able to make an invisibility potion at one point, which turns people invisible, of course. Um, but, and he would actually put muggle repelling charms on his tent so that he couldn't be discovered. Um, by muggles during this whole thing, but he messed up when Laura Thin was actually there from the Ministry of Magic doing her own investigative work. Um, he initially claimed he was in the in the Alps just to view graphorns in their natural habitat. Um, when he actually was uh, questioned by the Ministry, um, and uh, so actually uh, he did have a really pretty good trial. Uh, what helped him out was he was a big fan of the Puddlemere United, so he had a lot of Quidditch supporters actually on his case, but eventually um, he was you know, removed from office is what happened there. But his magical abilities were potions. He was proficient in magical art, proficient in brewing. Uh, he actually successfully brewed the invisibility potion in his travels, it is claimed. Um, known uh, possessions that he had that were magical artifacts were socks, his suitcase, uh, his tent, because he had the concealment charms on him. Uh, so, and this actually occurs 
in um, in uh, Pottermore is where you can look this up. Um, and actually, you can see uh, evidence of him in Fantastic Beasts, uh, the game that was released, um, which was Fantastic Beasts Cases from the Wizarding World. But um, And in that game, you can actually take on the role of Mathilda Grimblehawk um, to solve cases around the world and find hidden objects and cast spells and brew potions um, to solve mysteries. Various cases, uh, such as like uh, the Wizarding World, uh, you can find cases there or in Nocturne Alley or Diagon Alley. Uh, the game actually was removed from the App Store December 10th, uh, 2019 and was officially closed January 14th, 2020. It was more of like an online game. Uh, Mathilda Grimblehawk, uh, she, was, she was around. She was a British witch employed by the British Ministry of Magic. Uh, she dealt competently with wizards, muggles, and centaurs and walked uh, the beast division of Hogwarts. Um, as an intern of the Ministry of Magic, uh, she solved a case with a Quidditch keeper um, of the Chudley Cannons, who was uh, Gordon Horton. Uh, it was believed that the Chudley Cannons were believed to be best uh, team, best team in Quidditch at the time in the entire league. Uh, she did walk on cases such as uh, the attack of Dawn, Harrison Construction's crew, uh, the story from the Sirens, um, rest landlord of Welsh Lake Monster. So they claimed there was actually a monster in the Great Lake, which we talked about the Great Lake before uh, in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Um, and then the disappearance of Bullius Finbook, uh, the investigation of the sewers in London, and then the fire at Hogwarts, which we've talked about the fire at Hogwarts before. Uh, remember when they were performing that play? We'll actually talk about that play uh, for a little bit, actually, in our show today uh, during part two. Um, according to Gethsmane Prickle, uh, she once during uh, actually tested the drought of living death on herself uh, before giving it to a magical creature just to make sure that magical creature would be fine and she is actually quoted as saying it only happened once <laughs> so she actually had someone watch her as she administered um, this uh, drought of living death on herself which she literally could have risked dying right there uh, in 2018 uh, she was walking uh she was working with the Statute of Secrecy Tax Force and helping them fix results from the Calamity, which we talked about the Calamity before. Remember all those artifacts got went missing? And then uh, it was that game where you would actually help Hagrid uh, on your phone, you know, get these art artifacts back to their timeline. Um, she actually ministered several cases for its members, including um, a career in magazoology, and intensive, uh, week-long, uh, centered, uh, centered class on how to ride a kelpie. So that was really interesting, um, and those were courses that she actually taught. As a bat expert, she actually helped improve members' insight into the bat bogey hex, which we'll talk about today. And her mag uh, magical abilities included magi zoology, martial magic, potions, and charms. Uh, she does appear in the game, uh, appears in Fantastic Beasts, Cases from the Wizarding World, and Harry Potter Wizards Unite. Uh, Harry Potter Wizards Unite was actually a mobile game on Pottermore. 
uh, and it was made available March 11, 2019, but it was actually taken down after pre-registry. On April 16, 2019, a beta version was actually released in New Zealand um, for users, iOS users specifically, and was originally scheduled to release in June 21st, 2019, but the game actually released a day early on June 20th, 2019. But the whole idea is it was unpredictable um, magic that appeared all over the muggle world for the wizarding world uh, that faced potential exposure. To avoid this, the Ministry of Magic actually began recruiting witches and wizards to join the Statue of Secrecy Task Force. Um, it was played in the version of like a Pokemon Go kind of game, but the whole idea is you would um, find foundables and add them back into the registry, which their registry uh, was divided into categories. So you had exploration, challenges, mysteries, and events. Uh, exploration is divided into care for magical creatures, dark arts, ministry and magic, magi zoology, uh, legends of Hogwarts, magical games and sports, uh, mysterious artifacts, wonders of the wizarding world and abilities. And then you had uh, challenges was the next uh, section there where you had um, it showed the level of the player that's after completing the challenge the wizard would give them uh, to get the foundable. You would also have the section of mysteries, which is the chapter that involved the calamity foundables that would go missing involving the game storyline. Uh, the events info you would also have that contains all the relevant information regarding specific live events and details that were included. Uh, Hesper Gomp. So going back a little bit to where we were with Ulick Gomp, um, she was alive in 1906 or later, uh, actually married Sirius Black II and had three children, um, Articus, Lycris, and Regulus, and she was the grandmother of Orion Black and Lucretia Black, uh, Sirius is Black's 14th great-grandmother, so you can see who that is. Uh, Gomp, remember we said Ulick Gomp's dad didn't have that name, um, so he was a, a wizard or witch unknown uh, for gender details, so they actually don't know whether or not um, he was a man or a woman, but we're assuming he was a man. But uh, it just says he's really unknown. They really don't know his identity, but they do know he is accredited with Gomp's Law of Elemental Transfiguration. So Gomp's Law of Elemental Transfiguration actually dictates uh, the rules of... Uh, it actually dictates the rules of transfiguration, which is said to have five principles, um, basically creating something from nothing. But the way I've looked at this is it's basically explaining, you know, why magic is happening, right? Or why something is being transfigured. So actually in Gomp's law of transfiguration, uh, it uses food involvement is the examples here. So uh, the five laws are... Food cannot be multiplied is the first one. Food cannot be summoned is the second one. Food cannot be conjured is the third one. Food cannot be enlarged is the fourth one. Uh, the fifth one is food cannot be consumed from nothing. Um, creatures actually were conjured, um, but whether or not the material such as snakes or birds um, may appear 
uh, may or may not be edible. So the whole idea is you have to have a reason for transfigure, uh, transfiguring things. So, and then the second minister of magic for you was Damocles Rao. Uh, so Damocles Rao was around from 1718 to 1726. Um, Damocles Rao was known uh, for building building um, basically what we know as Azkaban today. Uh, so remember we were talking about when Christus founded the island, right? He is the father of Dementors. So he created Dementors uh, to torture muggles and witches and wizards that he would lure onto the island of what became Azkaban with concealment charms. So they wouldn't know they were there until he brought them in. Well, basically what happened was after Christus, the spell went wrong and he died, um, what would happen? What happened was Damocles Rao was responsible for considering to actually demolish Azkaban, um, and the ministry had a big back and forth feud. Uh, well, what happened was, like we said before, on these interesting facts. So, the prisons, uh, the smaller prisons, ran out of room, so they needed actually a place to put them. So what they did was they wound up moving all their most um, unlawful or most risky prisoners over into Azkaban first and kept the Dementors there. Um, and that's how it became known as what's today as the prison of Azkaban. Um, Perseus Parkinson's is the third minister of magic uh, from 1726 to 1733 uh, and was actually born before 1709. He tried to ban mixed marriages with muggles but was eventually thrown out. And the idea was that uh, he actually proposed in Macusa by Emily Report um, that he didn't want this idea of anything to do with muggles, which brought uh, actually controversy with Emily Report and Macusa, um, which Macusa we've talked about before is the magical... Uh, American Congress of the United States of America. Um, and remember, she was the one responsible that had those Muggle ties that really supported the Muggles that asked the Congress to help them out during the American Revolution and they wouldn't get involved. Um, so because of the second minister, the third minister of magic, Perseus Parkinson, uh, it's because of him that a lot of this back and forth controversy between Muggles and magical communities is so widespread. Um, Eldritch Diggory was your fourth minister of magic, so he was born before 1716, no exact date is known, but actually died in 1747. He is the ancestor of Amos and Cedric Diggory. Uh, he did establish the Aurora Recruitment Program in the British Ministry of Magic, uh, he did visit Azkaban, and he was the one that described the conditions as insane and actually established a committee to explore alternatives to remove the Dementors and guards that were kept there. Uh, experts thought that if the Dementors were deprived of the areas they were at, of the souls that they feed on, that they might actually abandon the island itself, come over to the Muggle world and the Wizarding mainland, and actually feed on civilians um, and take their souls. However, 
Diggory, being so horrified by what he had saw, actually continued his search for alternatives anyways. And in 1747, though, Diggory's search was put on halt and stopped because he died due to a case of dragonpox. Um, this disabled the committee to reaching a decision on Azkaban. Um, next, your fifth minister of magic was Albert Boot. He was born before 1733. He actually was the minister of magic from 1747 to 1752, and he is considered likable, but uh, he resigned after poor management because of the Goblin Rebellion, which we've talked about the Goblin Rebellion before. Um, Basile Flack was the sixth minister of magic from 1752, um, and he actually resigned after goblin forces joined with werewolves. He is the shortest holder of a Ministry of Magic office ever in history, and he resigned after only two months. Um, his faithist Gore uh, was the seventh Minister of Magic from 1752 uh, to 1770. He is known for being one of the earliest Aurors ever in history. He actually established the Aurora Recruitment Program, and in 1754 he officiated uh, the infamous broom race between Aberdeen um, and uh, Turquil Macasm and Silvo Estolfi. And what happened was it was this famous broom race around the world with the fastest Quidditch flyers in Europe. Uh, but what happened was just as they were getting to the finish line, all three collided, fell off their brooms, and actually someone shot a spell or something, but it caused an explosion. And the explosion set the Colosseum that they were at on fire. So what this happened, what happened was it caused Orabella Nutty, uh, who was actually a clerk of the improper use of magic office at the time, uh, that was assigned to handle luggage and port keys uh, that were um, being used to get to the Colosseum. So just like Goblet of Fire with the Quidditch World Cup. But uh, what she had to do was she had to invent a mending spell on the spot just to save everyone that was in the Colosseum. So that way it would mend uh, actually the stands so no one would fall out and die. <laughs> also, so, you know, it would stop the fires from spreading in the actual Colosseum. Um, the reason she was able to do it is because she actually had a history uh, for self-inventing spells, just like we've talked about before. Um, you know, we'll talk about a lot in this next episode as far as uh snape's uh, you know snape and his severus snape and how great his resume really is um but the mending charm so what that is is that's also known as a repairing charm so you've heard it before you know when hermione granger said oculus reparo and repaired repaired uh harry's glasses for everyone right um it was invented by oranabella uh, nutty in 1754 and this is recorded in the standard book of spells by Miranda Goshark uh, which is the grade one book uh, the charm only works on inanimated objects however uh, it will not mend certain powerful spells such as fiend fire that was deemed impossible to undo and that's because it is said um, that it was such a curse uh, that it was just it this mending spell wouldn't fix whatever it came in contact with because it would be uh, cursed as well as burned um, but a curse that uh, 
produces enchanted flames of immense size and heat and was capable of destroying nearly anything in its path, taking the form of a gigantic fiery beast such as serpents, chimeras, dragons, birds of prey, uh, and seek out living targets. Uh, this curse was super advanced, and um, we will talk about it much later as well in Deathly Hallows and Half-Bred Blood Prince. Um, but that was the Fiend Fire uh, curse. Um, previous users, um, Marulda Snide actually tried to teach this curse uh, to Jacob's sibling. However, she actually lost control of the fire until Patricia Rakepeck um, wound up turning off the fire, and this was in 1988. So remember we were talking about on our Interesting Facts episode, the first one we did with Harry Potter, about the Circle of Kana. So we'll talk about Circle of Kana a little bit today. Um, and it's actually, Fiendfire is related to Protego Diabolica that we've talked about with Gellert Grindelwald before. Remember at the mausoleum, he actually took his wand and formed the flames and said, my loyal followers, if you are so loyal, walk through these flames and the ones that ever doubted him for one second burned up in the flames. Um, Ornabelle and Nudley, just a little bit about her. So she was an Order of Merlin first class, a British witch who worked for the improper use of magic office in the 18th century. She did invent the, the mending charm. And the way this happened was, so she was actually low ranking in the clerk. Um, because she had very extreme shyness and she was unable to advance in her career um, because she couldn't get past the mental tasks. Um, so what they did was they would assign her dusting and cleaning out owl cages and filing. Uh, and during her free time, what she would do to keep herself um, you know, occupied, what she would do is she was proficient in self-inventing spells. Uh, such as the Mending Charm. That's how she came up with that on the spot. And she was actually awarded uh, Order of Merlin First Class for saving everyone in the stadium because of that. But she wore a lilac-pointed hat, uh, red curly hair and glasses, long gray overalls, and plain black shoes, is what it says she was always known for wearing. Uh, she rarely said anything when others spoke to her. She was actually... Um, even rarely went to meetings actually is known she would just skip out of meetings at the ministry of magic uh she was quick-witted though and she invented those spells during her spare spare time her magical abilities included spell creation and charms and you can find her being mentioned in pottermore in the wonder book of spells um so gore also known as um being i would say uh, he left office after 18 years and was succeeded by Maximilian Crowdy, um, and he eventually retired from office. Um, but he was known as really just being, you know, free-flowing, I guess. But um, he was also known as uh, trying to relieve Azkaban uh, of all those years. So he was actually really working against um, what the previous... Um, minister was doing is trying to find alternatives so that didn't go too well uh, the eighth minister of magic from this point was maximilian crowdy from 1770 to 1781 he was elected by the british and irish wizarding population twice he was a father of nine a charismatic leader who actually routed several extremist pure blood groups and planned muggle attacks 
he uh, mysteriously actually died in office. Um, and there are a lot of conspiracy theories about this in books that are accusing um, muggles of his murder. He actually was approached by American wizards in 1777 to help a nomad. And he is actually the one that we've talked about before on the interesting facts where uh, they, he was asked to help Aid Nomage in the American Revolution with the Muggles. And he is still quoted as saying, we will sit this one out. Uh, the ninth minister of magic is Porteus Natchbull. He was from 1781 to 1789. He was born before 1764. No exact date is known. But he was called uh confident uh and he was around in 1782 as prime minister and he actually led um prime minister so he was actually friends with uh the muggle prime minister and he did help lead the north area of britain um aid with king george the third uh, and he actually kept King George III's mental stability, is what it says. Uh, World actually leaked out that the North believed that in wizards, and he was forced to resign because of this, because of the controversy with muggles and wizards. And this is when you start getting to the point where wizards were actually helping people in these wars, but they were doing it secretly. So almost like a James Bond kind of thing. And people were wondering why... You know, people are getting the upper hand in battlefield. Well, it's because you had this kind of, um, you know, you had this kind of like influx of people working together with each other, but not necessarily, you know, anyone, you know, anyone enforced a rule about it. And um, it caused a lot of controversy for people that, especially purebloods that were like, you should not be helping muggles at all. Um, but he was uh, first elected in 1787, but because of this controversy, uh, he was he ran for re-election, but was defeated in 1789. The 10th Minister of Magic was Unctious Osbert in 1789 to 1798. He was born in 1772, so we actually do have a date for him, uh, a year for him when he was born. Uh, his term in office was deemed as controversial, and he is actually accused as being a puppet in the sands by Septimus Malfoy, which Septimus Malfoy um, we'll talk about in just a second. But So uh, Unctuous was elected in the late 18th century and left office in 1798 and was succeeded by Artisma Lumpkin. So Septimus Malfoy for you, uh, he is actually the great-grandfather of Draco, um, he was the great grandfather of Lucius, and uh, he was the great great grandfather of Draco. So, sorry, he was the sixth great grandfather of Lucius, and he was the seventh grand great grandfather of Draco. So, sixth before and seventh of Draco, and eighth of Scorpius. So, 6th great-grandfather of Lucius, 7th great-grandfather of Draco, 8th great-grandfather of Scorpius, and he was around from 1772 to 1782. Uh, he was the advisor of the ministry minister, and he was the one accused of making Unctuous Osbort a puppet because of his family ties and really trying to 
abuse this situation where he was the one pulling the strings, almost like um, Tywin Lannister, I would say, or, you know, all that stuff with Gondor if you go over to Lord of the Rings, right? Artisma Lumpkin. So she was around from 1798 to 1811 as Minister of Magic. Uh, she was born 1754, died in 1825. She served as the first female Minister of Magic for Great Britain. She was a Hufflepuff student in her early years at Hogwarts. She established the Department of Magical Cooperation and lobbied hard, actually, to have a Quidditch World Cup tournament held in Britain during her time. Uh, she served as minister for 13 years and was succeeded uh, by Gorgon Stump in 1811. She did pass away in 1825, around 71. She is featured in a chocolate frog card. On September 1st, 1991, Prefect Gabriel Truman actually welcomed the Hufflepuff first years to the basement where uh, he gave a speech about uh, the former minister, Artisma, and said she was one of the most notable Hogwarts students uh, to ever be in the ministry, and she was from Hufflepuff. So it was supposed to be like an inspiring speech so they could be like her. Grogan Stump. So he was born in 1770 and died in 1884, the 12th minister of magic at this point. Um, he was 113 or almost 114 um, when he was minister. It said uh, he was a British wizard who was the minister of magic from 1811 to 1819. He was very popular in the job. His legacy actually includes the creation of being beast and spirit divisions of the department for regulation and control of magical creatures and the establishment of the department of magical games and sports so what you see here guys is this was when we talked about in the interesting facts about a month ago now about you know where you had magical creatures that were trying to stand up for human rights almost like today like you know how people need that uh, all equality should be given right um, well, they were doing the same thing, like centaurs and that sort of thing. They were over here saying how they needed to have the same amount of rights as wizards and witches. Um, but even ghosts were protesting because of this. But because of what was concluded, that didn't exactly go the way they wanted. But so he was elected minister by the wizarding population in Great Britain and Ireland twice. He was born in 1770 in Great Britain, um, and he attended Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry from 1781 to 1788 and was sorted into the Hufflepuff house. At age 41 in 1811, he addressed uh, the nomenclature of beings and beasts. He actually deemed that a being is any creature that has sufficient intelligence to understand the lowest magical community and to be part of the responsibility in shaping its laws. Uh, he settled the debate continuously um, that was being argued through the wizarding world during the 14th century. He created three divisions of the Department of Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures. These were being beast and spirit divisions. Uh, during Stump's tenure, um, what happened was they had those ghost demonstrations that I was talking about, uh, protest floats is actually what they're called, um, which basically what that was is these ghosts were showing, you know, uh, they were floating 
uh, all over, you know, Hogwarts, the ministry, everywhere, uh, protesting, and they were haunting people uh, all over in their sleep and out in the hallways and the schools and the ministry offices, uh, basically because they demanded uh, more rights. But uh, actually, a passionate Quidditch fan, um, for instance, so um, uh, he was supporting the Tutshill Tornadoes. Uh, Minister Stump um, was responsible for establishing the Department of Gym, uh, Magical Games and Sports. Um, Stump's term eventually ended in 1819, and he was succeeded by Josephina Flint. Uh, but these protest floats uh, that occurred occurred actually in 1810, and they refer to these ghost demonstrations that took place in the Ministry of Magic headquarters. Um, the protests by the ghost floats were stopped because what happened was he declared that these floats from these spirits were not actually people. They were classified as has-beens. And what this came down to is the whole idea is how we're talking about was Sir Nearly Headless Nick. He said, you know, he's really not either here or there. He's not really a person. He was basically, you know, a bewitchment of an imprint of an image, almost like energy, but it still acts as its own self. So it can still react and have a reaction and understand things. Um, but in the end, it doesn't really have a soul. So it doesn't really classify as something that is a being. Uh, basically, it's just an imprint of an image. It's a thing that's there. It's like the portraits, really. Um, just they're a little bit more animated because they're based, you know, it's literally an imprint that was taken um, that's on there. But it still isn't really that person is the idea. So they were classified as has has beens. But uh, Josephina Flint, so she was the 13th Minister of Magic. She was born before 1802. Uh, she was Minister of Magic from 1819 to 1827. She was selected twice. Um, she disliked muggle technology and actually claimed that the telegraph interfered with proper wand function. Adeline Gamble, really cool, the 14th Minister of Magic. So she was born before 1810. She was the British Minister of Magic from 1827 to 1835. Uh, she was fascinated with muggle technology. Actually, she was known as being daring and controversial. She developed the Hogwarts Express. So she's the one that was responsible for this idea. Uh, she had an idea to transport students to school uh, with hundreds of students by using uh, what they considered non-magic technology. This led to the creation of the Hogwarts Express. She was elected twice. Actually, the building of the Hogwarts Express involved 167 memory charms and the biggest concealment charm that has ever occurred to this date um, because they didn't want anyone to know about this. And they had a lot of witches and wizards actually help out with this, but there was so much controversy that we talked about here between muggles and the wizard and witch community that they didn't want anyone to know about that technology that was going on, that wizards and witches were about to use muggle technology that was literally so frowned upon during this time. Um, the project was kept secret 
And then in 1830, she hired the trolley, uh, to, uh, trolley witch to sell sweets on the train. And then in 1835, she wound up leaving office. Before the train, students would actually use port keys to travel to Hogwarts. Um, Adeline felt this wasn't an ideal situation. Every year, one-third of students would actually fail to show up to Hogwarts, as well as get port key sickness. Uh, flu powder was proposed, but they didn't like the idea of flu powder travel because it was monitored by the ministry, and it is thought that secrets of Hogwarts could be told, and they didn't like that uh, security was able to breach the Hogwarts castle by using flu powder. Um, the concealment charm. So concealment charm, we talked about this before multiple times. Uh, it conceals objects from view um, and actually uh, inherits the magical properties of objects. Um, known biggest concealment charm. So in the 15th century, we've talked about this one, we'll count up from three to one. So the third biggest concealment charm is a Chrysdis in 15th century. He concealed the entire island that Azkaban is now located on that he was using to murder and torture muggles, witches, and wizards. Um, second biggest one, in 1793 and 1794, exact time of that year is unknown, but Vincent du Treffel uh, Pix was a French wizard who was an alumnus of the Bowbatten's Academy of Magic, actually performed a concealment charm on his own neck. He actually... Uh, what he did was he pretended his head was already severed to escape the reign of terror following the French Revolution. Um, and then, of course, the biggest one, number one, was the Hogwarts Express with all those concealment charms. Uh, so that was pretty cool. But Annalena Gamble in the 20th century performed the biggest concealment charm over the Hogwarts Express to conceal its identity during creation. The reign of terror for you. So we're going to talk a little bit you know, we were talking about the witches and wizards and how they really like to help the Muggle community uh, during this time. And you had all this back and forth with what's wrong, what's right, who gets involved with who, who doesn't get involved with who. So this segues into what we're going to talk about. So we're actually going to talk about good bit, uh, the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror, which actually involves our folklore a lot, which is really cool. Um, and actually, as said, Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, it's talked about on Pottermore a little bit, had witches and wizards in his army, which is why he was such a great, powerful military tacticianer, um, or military practitioner. Um, and it, it's just said that's why he wiped out so many armies. Of course, in our folklore today, we know that's not true, but apparently in the Harry Potter Wizarding World, uh, that's the thought. But the Reign of Terror was a period of execution of enemies of the French Revolution that took place between 1793 and 1794. It actually targeted among vic uh, victims was Vincent du Treffel uh, Pix, who managed to escape execution by casting a concealment charm on his own neck, pretending to already be decapitated, which is mentioned in Pottermore. French Revolution actually occurred from May 5th, 1789 to November 9th, 1799. Uh, ten years, six months, and four days. The location was the Kingdom of France. It was between 1700 and 1789. The French population increased 18 million to 26 million, leading to the large numbers of unemployed citizens. Um, also, 
food prices were increasing due to bad harvests. Uh, wide social distress was occurring, and this led to the Estates General in May 1789. Uh, the first since June of 1614 when the estates actually converted the national assembly this led to the abolition of feudalism and the control of the catholic church by the state of extending the right to vote next three years of this were actually dominated by political control economic depression and social unrest external powers austria britain and prussia viewed the french revolution as a threat that led to the outbreak of the french revolutionary wars in april 1792 the disillusionment was uh, Louis XVI. So I always say XVI as far as Roman numerals, just in case I mess it up. Um, but uh, this led to the establishment of the First French Republic on September 22nd, uh, September uh, 17, uh, September uh, 22nd, 1792. Uh, Louis was executed in, in January 1793. And afterwards, an uprising in Paris occurred that June and replaced uh, the Girondins, who dominated the National Assembly with the Committee of the Public Safety and was headed by Maximilian Robespierre. This actually sparked the Reign of Terror on an attempt to eradicate any alleged counter-revolutionist uh, by the time it ended in July 1794, and over 16... 1,600 had actually been executed in Paris in the provinces, as well as external enemies. The Republic faced a series of internal royalist and uh, Jacobin revolts in order to deal with these French directories uh, that took power in November 1795. Despite military success, the war actually led to economic stagnation, internal divisions as well, in November 1799. The directory was replaced by a consultate, uh, many revolutionary symbols, such as uh, La Melias, which is a phrase that says liberate, um, reappeared out of these revolts. In 1917, the Russian Revolution actually wound up occurring, and over the next two centuries, its key principles like equality would inspire campaigns and abolition of slavery and universal suffrage. Uh, its values actually instituted uh, French politics to that day, and many historians actually regard the revolution as one of the most important events in history. But um, Louis Augustine, uh, so he was around in August 23rd, 1754. This is Louis XVI. Um, and this is January 21st, 1793 uh, that he was around. So from he was around from August 23rd, 1754 to January 21st, 1793. The first part of his reign was marked by attempts to reform the French government in accordance to Enlightenment ideas, such as serfdom, taxes, abolish the death penalty, increase tolerance towards non-Catholics. Um, the French people actually viewed this as a sense of tyranny. Um, he was actually a really good guy. But um, he proposed the deregulation of the grain market, which led to bad harvest in 1775. And because of this, the blaming of his proposal of the assistant Turgot led to increased uh, bread policies and more revolts. Uh, Lewis also supported the American colonists in 1776 uh, that were gaining independence from Great Britain. This led to the Treaty of Paris in 1783, which led to more debt and a financial crisis because of this. That 
contributed to more unpopularity, and eventually the ancient regime occurred. Um, this led to convening to the Estates General in 1789, which strengthened the opposition against him. Um, and actually his wife as well, really, just because she was part of the family. Um, and his wife was actually Mary Antoinette. So if you've heard the Queen song, She's a killer queen, just like Mary Antoinette. Yeah, and um, that's who that is, actually. So this led to the Storming of Bastille. Uh, Storming of Bastille, what that was is it was riots in Paris uh, that forced the members of Paris to recognize uh, legislative authority of the National Assembly. Um, Lewis's indecisiveness and conservative uh, views actually is why the French decided to revolt because of this big symbol of tyranny. Um, so you see this today's episode. There's a lot of like back and forth with what's wrong, what's right, all this controversy that goes on. There's a lot of history of this in the wizarding world. Um, in 1799, or I'm sorry, in 1791, he had an unsuccessful flight to Veronese. Um, and in 17... 17- 91 uh eventually the abolition of the dime occurred which was a tax a religious tax at the time um and it arrested lewis and suspended him at the time of insurrection of august 10th 1792 Uh, one month later the first french republic was established in september 21st 1792 Uh, lewis actually was tried at the national convention and was found guilty of high treason he was executed by guillotine on January 21st, 1793, under the name of Citizen Louis Capet. So they actually even tried to remove his title there. Um, but his predecessors, the ones before him, actually did establish the Capetian dynasty, which is a big deal. Um, that was Louis XVI. He was the only king of France to ever be executed, and his death brought an end to more than a thousand years of continuous French monarchy. Both his sons uh, actually died at childhood before the Bourbon Restoration. Um, His only child to reach adulthood was Marie Therese, and she was actually given over to the Austrians in exchange for French prisoners of war that eventually died childish. Childless, she did, in 1851. Um, and so uh, the uh, what who they were, were actually members of the loosely knit political uh, fashion active in, legis- in the legislative assembly at the National Convention. Um, Maximilian Robespierre was a French lawyer during the French Revolution. He tried to actually abolish slavery and bring equality to people. His goal was actually to create an indivisible France that also played a role in the fall of the French monarchy and rise of the National Convention. Uh, The French Directory, uh, what that was, was a five-member committee in the French First Republic from November 2nd, 1795 to November 9th, 1799. It was eventually overthrown by Napoleon Bonaparte with his coup of 18 uh, that replaced the consultate. Uh, it gave its name for the final four years of the French Revolution. So here we go with Napoleon and his witches and wizards that were claimed to be in his army. But uh, it is pretty amazing what he did. So I actually will tell you a little bit of our actual folklore here, which is really cool. So the National Assembly 
the re- was the revolutionary assembly that existed from uh, June 1789 to July 9th, 1789, that was formed by representatives of the third estates, uh, which um, was the general uh, that replaced the legislative assembly on September 30th, 1791, known as the National uh, National Constitute Assembly. But uh, serfdom, if you didn't know what that was, that's just liberation, basically liberation of people. Um, the Treaty of Paris in 1783 uh, formally recognized American independence from Britain. It helped formally end the American Revolutionary War between Great Britain and the United States in 1783. Um, the ancient regime, what that was, was a social system in place in France before the revolution in 1789. Uh, the Estates General of 1789. It was a general assembly of French estates of the realm, and it was broken up into three sections. So these three sections was each an estate. So the first estate was the clergy, the second estate was the nobility, and the third estate was the commoners. Uh, a little bit about Queen Marie Antoinette. Uh, she was the last queen of France before the French Revolution, and she was born in Archduchess of Austria, and was uh, the plenomate child and youngest daughter of the Empress Maria Theresa and Emperor Francis I. Uh, the Storming of Bastille, uh, a little bit more about that, that occurred in Paris, France on July 14, 1789. Uh, the medieval army fortress or political prison known as Bastille was represented by a royal authority in the center of Paris. Uh, the prison contained only seven inmates at the time of the storming, but was seen by revolution, revolutionists as a symbol of the monarch's abuse of power. Um, so the flight of Veronese. So this is when Louis really met his end. Louis XVI, as I call him, because <laughs> I don't want to mess up the Roman numerals. Um, but the flight of Veronese was on June 20th, uh, June 20th to june 21st uh really so really just about a day and this was in 1791 so this occurred june 20th to june 21st 1791 at night uh lewis and Marie antoinette and their immediate family members attempted to escape paris um and were initiated in an encounter um by loyal troops and royalist officers that were concentrated at montemitty near the frontier they escaped only as far as a small town of Veramese in Agome, where they actually were arrested uh, for having been recognized at their previous stop and in St. Uh, Macoud. Uh, they were eventually um, taken to trial, and it led to King Louis' execution in 1793. Um, and in the insurrection of August 1792, what that was, was armed revolutionaries in Paris engaged in a conflict with French monarchs and stormed the Tolmeri's palace. Uh, the conflict led France to abolish monarchy and establish a republic. The summer of 1792, Louis vetoed radical measures voted upon, and the tensions escalated in Prussian and Austrian armies had issued Brunswick Manifesto, which means threatening unforgettable vengeance on Paris, uh, which, um, you know, wound up having harm done to the French monarchy. Um, and on August 10th, the National Guard of Paris actually wound up 
um, being in the king's residence uh, and in the Tolerys Palace of Paris, um, was actually defended by Swiss guards. Hundreds of Swiss guardsmen and 400 revolutionaries were actually killed in the battle, and Louis and the royal family took shelter in the legislative assembly. The formal end of the monarchy occurred uh, six weeks later on September 21st as one of the first acts of the National Convention, which established the Republic the next day. Uh, the Carpathian Dynasty. Um, so this was, you know, what was, bef what kind of like occurred um, a little bit. I want to make sure I have this for you. Uh, so yeah, this occurred really, really up until the death of Charles the Fourth. But uh, so the Carpathian Dynasty is known as the House of France. Um, the bran uh, branch of Robertians, uh that was a long uh, line of royal houses in Europe and the world, um, which consisted of Hugh Capet, who is the founder of the dynasty of the male line descendants, who actually ruled France without interruption from 987 to 1792, and again from 1814 to 1848. Uh, the senior line ruled in France, as the House of Capet from the election of Hugh Capet in 987 until the death of Charles IV in 1328. The line was succeeded by the cadet branches, the House of Valois, and the Bourbon House, uh, which ruled without interruption until the French Revolution was abolished uh, from the monarchy in 1792. The Bourbons wound up restoring in 1814 in the aftermath of Napoleon's defeat, but had to vacate the throne again in 1830 uh, in favor of the last Capetian monarch of France, uh, Louis Philippe I, who belonged to the House of Orleans. So that's kind of what happened after Napoleon. Um, so to jump into Napoleon here for you, just so you can hear a little bit of history on him, just because I think it's pretty cool. Uh, so, you know, should throw the malice in the chalice card on this. So malice in the chalice, everybody. About to learn about Napoleon Napoleon motherfucking Bonaparte. Oh, yeah. <laughs> About to tell your bones apart up in here. Anyways, uh, so Napoleon Bonaparte uh, was from August 15, 1769 to May 5, 1821. A beast mode. Yeah, he, he, was, he was a beast. Yeah. Still going bad on him many ways. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he was a French political and military leader. He rose to prominence during the French Revolution and led the several success campaigns during the Revolutionary Wars. Uh, he was an emperor of France from 1804 to 1814, and then again in 1815. He actually dominated European and global forces uh, while leading the French in a series of coalitions known as the Napoleonic Wars. He won the most of those wars, a vast majority of those battles, including a large empire, uh, ruled over continental Europe until its collapse in 1815. One of the greatest commanders in history he is regarded as. Actually, a number of military schools still practice his tactics today. He was so widely regarded. Uh, he was born um, in Corsica to a family of Italian nobility, um, and then... He supported the French Revolution in 1789. In 1796, he began his first military campaign against the Austrians and the Italian allies. 
Um, he had a number of decisive victories that became a national uh, and, and became a national hero. Two years later, he actually led a military expedition to Egypt and sprang to political power that way. He engineered a coup in 1799 and became the first consul of the Republic. Um, and he was facing the third coalition by 1805 with the British, which uh, wound up stopping uh, these, these victories of his with the Ulm campaign, which was a historic British, uh, a historic triumph at the Battle of Austerlitz. So uh, it actually was, uh, you'll hear about it in just a minute, but um, it found in Napoleon's favor. But it led to the elimination of the Roman Empire. In 1806, a fourth correlation took up arms against him because Prussia became worried about the French influence on the continent. Napoleon uh, quickly defeated them. And then at the Jena and Averstadt, uh, they marched a grand army deep into Eastern Europe and annihilated Russians in June 1807 at Friedland. Uh, the force of the nation's coalition uh, forced them to accept the terms of the Treaty of Talist, which two years later, Austrians actually challenged the French during the Fifth Coalition, but Napoleon solidified his grip on Europe at the Battle of Wigram. Napoleon declared his brother Joseph king of Spain in 1608, which caused a lot of problems, and the Spanish Portuguese caused a revolution because of the support, and they were allied with the British um, because of the embargo Napoleon had put on the British. Uh, the embargo uh, was what started the pencil, uh, peninsular, uh, peninsular uh, war that lasted six years and featured featured brutal guerrilla warfare and culminated in the defeat of Napoleon. Uh, Napoleon launched an invasion of Russia in summer of 1812. Uh, the invasion forced a catastrophic defeat and the retreat of Napoleon's army. In 1813, Prussia and Austria joined forces with the Russian forces in the Sixth Coalition against France. This defeated Napoleon at the Battle of Leipzig, in October 1813, and the coalition invaded France and captured Paris, uh, forcing Napoleon to abdicate in April 1814. Napoleon was exiled to the island of Elba between Carcissa and Italy in France, and the Bourbons were restored to power. Napoleon escaped from Elba in February 1850 and 1815. Sorry, uh, escaped from Elba in 1815 and took control back of France. Um, France allies that were responding to the Seventh Coalition, which ultimately defeated Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo in June 1815. The British wound up exiling him uh, to the remote island of St. Helena, uh, and this is in the South Atlantic area. His death occurred in 1821 at the age of 57, and he was received with great shock and grief around Europe, no one expected him to die that early. Malice in the chalice. Um, but, so he's got a lot of, uh, a lot of history here. But uh, the Napoleonic Wars for you was a series of major conflicts that happened in the French Empire and its allies. Um, 
during the European powers that formed various coalitions. Uh, they produced brief periods of French domination over most of continental Europe. Uh, the war actually stemmed from unresolved disputes that were associated with the French Revolution and its resultant conflict. Uh, the wars are categorized into five conflicts, each termed after the coalition that fought Napoleon. Uh, we talked about the first two a little bit. The third coalition, though, was in 1805. Fourth coalition was 1806 to 1807, a year long. The fifth coalition was 1809. The sixth coalition was 1813 to 1814, another year long. And the seventh coalition, the final one, was in 1815. So uh, all this wound up occurring um so this occurred may 18th 1803 to november 20th 1815 and this was a total of 12 years five months and four weeks uh this occurred in the atlantic ocean cassius europe french uh Guinea, indian ocean mediterranean sea north america the north sea rio de plata and west indies and ultimate resulted ultimately resulted in a coalition victory, uh, the Ulm campaign was a series of French and barbarian military maneuvers and battles that outflanked and captured the Austrian army. I'll let you know right now, it resulted in Napoleon's victory. In 1805, during the third coalition that took place uh, at the vicinity of the inside of Swabian, the Bavarian city of Ulm, the French Grand Army, led by Napoleon, compromised of 210,000 troops, organized into seven corps, and hoped to knock out the Austrian army in Dunant before Russian reinforcements could arrive. Through rapid marching, uh, Napoleon conducted a large wheeling maneuver that captured an Austrian army of 23,000 under General Malk. In October 20th at Ulm, um, uh, Reverently, uh, so this brought the total number of Austrian prisoners of the campaign to 60,000. The campaign is generally regarded as a strategic masterpiece uh, and was influential in the development of the Scheiflin plan in the 19th uh, century for you. And in the late, uh, in the Battle of Austerwitz actually occurred in December 2nd, 1805, and is also known as the Battle of Three Emperors, one of the most important engagements of the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, this is regarded as the greatest military uh, victory ever achieved by Napoleon, and the Grand Army of France uh, was defeated, the larger, uh, actually defeated the larger Russian and Austrian army that was led by Emperor Alexander I and the Roman Emperor Francis II. Uh, the battle occurred near the town of Austerlitz, the Austin Empire, the modern-day uh, Slavkov, uh, Brenna, and the Sejak Republic. Uh, Austerlitz brought the War of the Third Coalition to a rapid end with the Treaty of Pressburg, Pressburg that is signed by Austrians later in the month. Uh, this is often, often actually looked at as a tactical masterpiece as well. Um, Napoleon won this battle by weakening the right flanks and facing the opposing enemies to attack the French lines. Reinforcements from the French eventually defeated the opposing army when Napoleon 
um, used his expertise to clear a gap that he had made from flanking both sides of the army during their attack. Um, so this was basically almost like what Jon Snow was trying to do during Battle of the Bastards, uh, bringing it back to Game of Thrones, going way back. We can bring it back. Anyways, um, and he destroyed the flanks, and the opposing enemy was forced to retreat. Uh, Gene asked it, uh, so this occurred, uh, Gene and asked it, this occurred from um, October 14th, 1806. It was fought on the plateau of the West Riverside in Germany. Um, Napoleon fought Frederick William III and the Prussian army and resulted in Prussian army subjected to the French until the Sixth Coalition in 1812. The Battle of Jena was the Prussian army was divided into three armies from, and it occurred in the fields of Jena. The French army actually attacked the Prussian lines, and but by 1 p.m., Napoleon had ordered his men to push hard through the Prussian flanks uh, that were centered towards the center of the battlefield. Uh, the Prussians ultimately fled the battlefield and lost 10,000 men and had 15,000 prisoner of war taken by Napoleon. Uh, the Battle of Everstadt, uh, Napoleon's army was on the move but stopped by the Prussian cavalry at 6.30 a.m. in Nuremberg. Uh, the battle commenced in a heavy fog until 10 a.m. when the Prussian cavalry fell back and the Duke of Brunswick was mortally wounded along with the Chamteau, Sham and both were carried from the battlefield. Both Prussian commanders actually retreated, uh, but William I of the Netherlands arrived with reinforcements, and at 11 a.m. Prussians uh, counterattacked, but by noon was forced to withdraw. Uh, Prussia lost 7,052 officers and had 13,000 casualties. Uh, the Treaty of Talis, a little bit about that, what that was, was it was two agreements that were signed by Napoleon of France in the town of Talis in July 1807 after a victory in Feedland and was signed on July 7th between Emperor Alexander I of Russia and Napoleon I of France uh, when they met on a raft in the uh, Neiman River. Uh, this uh, was signed July 9th. Uh, the treaties actually made an expense of uh, the kings that agreed um, to it on June 25th. Uh, after that, they wound up capturing Berlin and persuaded, uh, wound up persuading the easternmost frontier of this realm. Uh, into list, it ceded about half of its pre-war territories where Napoleon eventually created sister republics um, because it lost, you know, it lost a, a good amount of land there. But the Fifth Coalition was the war between the Austrian Empire against Napoleon's French Empire and Green Allies. And then the Battle of Wingram occurred in July 5th to the 6th in 1809. And this was a military engagement of the Napoleonic Wars that ended costly, but a victory for Napoleon. Uh, this is when he starts, you know, actually getting beat on a little bit. But the French army actually forced the British-Austrian alliance um, that opposed France. And Napoleon prepared for six weeks for this battle. He amassed 172,000 French and German and Italian men. Uh, in the city of Vienna. The battle began when Napoleon crossed Dunby 
uh, with his forces on July 4th and actually attacked with 136,000 uh, men strong Austrian army. And he successfully crossed the river and attempted to break through, though. He ultimately won uh, the first victory when Austrians were spread too thin. Following the first battle, though, the Archduke Charles launched a series of attacks that resulted in Napoleon's victory, but defeat of his right flank. The emperor eventually turned uh, the tide, referring to Napoleon, um, by building this offensive front that he has built and gained uh, through the Napoleonic Wars, almost pulling a Daenerys Targaryen here. Uh, eventually, Napoleon's army regained forces, though, at the Battle of uh, at the Battle of Znam, uh, where ten thousand men of Napoleon caught up to the Austrians, and by July tenth, eighteen o nine, refused to cease fire. The battle lasted two days and ultimately ended in both sides su suffering such vast casualties that there is a peace agreement signed called Treaty of Schnaumann on October 14, 1809, that ended with the Fifth Coalition. The Battle of Wegram uh, ended with 80,000 casualties, the expenditure of over 180,000 rounds of artillery, with the loss, um, with the loss of, uh, it said, 300,000 men. Uh, the defeat was enough to shudder the morale of Austrians despite Napoleon's uh, contested uh, losses there. Uh, the Peninsular War uh, lasted from 1807-1814, fought by Spain and Portugal that assisted the United Kingdom against the forces of France to control the Liberian Peninsula during the Napoleonic Wars. The French and Spanish armies invaded Portugal in 1807, and it escalated in 1808 when Napoleon occupied Spain. Napoleon um, instilled his brother Joseph Bonaparte on the Spanish throne. And it pre this is when we were talking about when he wanted his brother as the king of Spain. And you got that backlash um, from, you know, from the Prussians, really. Uh, but this was on the Bayani Constitution. Um, and its cotters of Spain rejected the French rule. Uh, the bloody war lasted until the Sixth Coalition, which defeated Napoleon in 1814. This is actually regarded as one of the biggest liberation attempts with the large-scale guerrilla warfare. Uh, the Bayonese Statute uh, was the document of the Constitution that declared Joseph Bonaparte as the King of Spain. Um, in the Battle of Leipzig, uh, which is also known as the Battle of Nations, was fought from October 16, 1813, uh, to October 9th, 1813, at Leipzig, uh, Saxony, uh, coalition armies of Austria, Prussian, Sweden, and Russian, led by Tsar uh, Alexander and uh, Karl von Schwarzenberg, defeated Napoleon and his French army and Polish, Italian, and German allies. The battle involved 500,000 soldiers and an expenditure of 200,000 rounds of ammunition. It resulted in 127,000 casualties, making it the largest battle prior to the World War I. Napoleon decisively defeated again, a return to France while the South Coalition kept momentum. Napoleon was forced to abdicate and was exiled to Elba, the island of Elba, in May 1814. Uh, the Battle of Waterloo. So this is where we start 
on that downfall trend for Napoleon here. Uh, the Battle of Waterloo was fought on Sunday, June 18, 1815, near Waterloo in Belgium, part of the United Kingdom in Netherlands is where it's at. Uh, Napoleon defeated uh, was defeated by two armies of the Seventh Coalition, consisting of uh, the British United Kingdom in Netherlands, uh, Hanover, Brunswick, Nassau, under the command of Duke of Wellington, and they were allied with a Passion Army commanded by Field Ar- uh, Marshal von Butcher, who is referred to as Bulcher's Army. So, sorry, Field Marshal von Bulcher, who's referred to as Bulcher's Army. Uh, the battle marked the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, Napoleon planned to attack Wellington and Bulcher's Army separately, actually. But in results, just immobilized them. And on July 16th and 17th, Napoleon successfully attacked the bulk of the Prussian army at the Battle of Ligeny. His main force actually caused the Prussians to withdraw. However, the north uh, resulted in a separate battle called the Battle of Waver. Uh, this prevented the Prussians from participating in the Battle of Waterloo. But on June 16th, a small portion of Napoleon's army engaged with the Prussians at the Battle of Waterbras, um, which is an Anglo-allied allied army. This caused Napoleon's army to draw back to the Battle of Waterloo. Um, Wellington actually offered his army on the battle on Mount St. John, uh, which you've heard of this before. I'll tell you in a minute why. An escarpment near Waterloo, uh, he withstood repeated attacks by the French in June 18th, and the Prussians attacked the French flanks that allied with Wellington and caused Napoleon's army drastic casualties. In the evening, Napoleon's army assaulted uh, Wellington's last reserves and actually broke through the Prussian right flank. Uh, Waterloo was Napoleon's uh, last engagement. According to Wellington, the battle uh, was the nearest they've ever run and the closest thing they've ever saw in their life. Uh, Napoleon abdicated uh, four days later, and coalition forces entered Paris on July 7th. The defeat at Waterloo ended Napoleon's rule as French emperor and marked the end of his hundred days return from exile. The Battle of uh, Ligeny uh, was actually fought June 16, 1815. French troops uh, of the army uh, du Nord... Um, under the command of Napoleon, defeated part of the Prussian army led by Field Marshal Bulcher uh, near Ligny, the present-day Belgium. The battle resulted in a tactical victory for the French, but the bulk of the Prussian army survived, and the battle met with them later at Waterloo two days later. The Battle of Waver, uh, what that was was the final major military action of the Hundred Days Campaign and the Napoleonic War- Wars. Uh, this was fought June 18th to June 19th and 1815 between Prussian rear guard, consisting of the Prussian corps led by General Johann von Thelman, whose chief of staff uh, was Karl von Clausewitz, and those corps of the French army under the command of Marshal Grouchy, a blocking action. This battle kept 33,000 French soldiers from reaching the Battle of Waterloo, which eventually led to the defeat of Napoleon. The Battle of Quarter Brasse was fought in June 16, 1815, and it was a preliminary engagement to the Battle of Waterloo that had took place two days later. 
The Battle of Mont Saint John in Belgium is located at Waterloo, so Walloon, uh, uh, Brabant, Belgium, and this is in South Waterloo. Actually, the street name is actually here, so National N5, and they say if you're going from Brussels to Chalaroc, uh, cross this road N234 uh, from Norels to Levin is where it's actually exactly located. But uh, the battle was a farm called, this is one that's going to be familiar to you, so Mont Saint Jean, a farm in uh, Chiliquiri, uh, Brussels Road, which is halfway about the edge of the escarpment of the village. This caused the, ba caused the Battle of Waterloo on June 18, 1815. Mont Saint John actually served as a field hospital. Uh, during the war, and here's a passage from an eyewitness who is Sergeant Maj Cotton. The field of the battle after the victory presented frightful and most distress distressing. Um, it had solitude uh, for the wounded. Uh, and this prompted the Duke of Wellington uh, to reach Brussels immediately after Sanguidor contest. The assistance of the town authorities were requested in collecting and removing the wounded from the field, burying the dead, and etc., as well as restore confidence among the population and ally the extreme excitement which prevailed throughout Belgium. Uh, nobility uh, did the inhabitants of the Brussels respond to the appeal. The clergy might have been expelled, were the foremost exterior relief to the dreadful agonies of so many gallant innocent sufferers the highest in rank revealed uh, the harder classes in performing the most trying artifices for the mangled heroes that filled hospitals and encountered even the most uh, purate dwellings and that was uh, edward cotton who was a voice from waterloo in 1854 um and here's why it's familiar. So the novel uh, La Miserable by Victor Hugo, volume two, book one, chapter X, I always say chapter X, House of X, right, um, is called The Plateau of Mont-Saint-John, and it describes the measure of massive French cavalry attacks on the British infantry squares situated on the reverse slope of the escarpment at the height of the battle. This is related, actually, um, to the concealment Charm, disillusionment charm, fidelis charm, and muggle repelling charm. Um, because like I was saying, as far as the witches and wizards in the war, um, then what they would do is it led to obliviations, and uh, basically the witches and wizards were known for helping out muggles during this controversy time, coming full circle here. Uh, but known practitioners... Uh, Vincent du Del Truffle Pox, remember he concealed his head and actually ran, um, we were talking about bringing our point full circle back, um, which was one of the biggest concealment charms here, uh, so he didn't get executed, um, and then we said Acrisdus, uh, is known, and of course Tom Riddle is known. The disillusionment charm, so... Um, Moody actually did this at one point and what this is was remember he did this in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix it basically makes you camouflage so you blend in with your surroundings uh, Harry looked like a chameleon remember the Fidelis charm is extremely difficult um, charm its incantation is still unknown but the charm 
is used to conceal a secret inside an individual's soul. The Witcher Wizard housed uh, was the secret was known as the Secret Keeper, which we've talked about this before. Uh, the spell was invisible, intangible, unplottable, and soundproof. Extremely ancient and old spell. Um, so the Muggle Repelling Charm. It was the charm prevented Muggles from seeing or entering an area. Remember, this was used in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire at the Quidditch World Cup. Um, any non-magic person that would get close to the area of enchantment would remember something urgent and would have to leave. Uh, Randolphus Lestrange. So he was actually the 15th Minister of Magic. And I know we've talked about him just a little bit before, but... Uh, he was born before 1818, no exact date is known, but he served as Minister of Magic from 1835 to 1841. He unsuccessfully attempted to close down the Department of Mysteries, and he eventually resigned due to ill health, rumored because of stress of the office. Hortensia uh, Millefont, uh, she was born before sometime in 1824, she was a witch from 1841 to 1849 that served as a minister of magic in the Britain in Britain and Ireland. She actually ran twice but was defeated on her re-election run. She introduced the legislation uh, during her term of office, and um, she had a downfall when she began to pass regulations that were just basically pointless, such as like hat re regulations and just ones that were absolutely dumb ridiculous ridiculous exactly uh evangelina orpington uh she was next she was the minister of magic from 1849 to 1855 was born in 1832 she was a british witch who is accredited with the concealed platform at king's cross station so you know how they would walk through platform nine and three quarters and disappear evangeline orpington is the one who's accredited with that her wand, actually, interesting enough, was a poplar wand along with um, the diggeries, uh, uh, you know, the diggery that was a minister of magic. Uh, so, and the whole idea with the poplar wand and the diggery was Eldritch diggery. So, not Cedric, once again, or Amos, um, but Eldritch diggery was the minister of magic, their ancestor. But they both had poplar wands, and the whole idea was. They thought that no one could be a really good politician, uh, politician with a popular wand. Interesting play on words, tongue twister there, right? Um, but the joke was that, so the tired old joke among lesser wand makers that no popular wand had ever closed or been closer to a politician and was utterly unsubstantial given that two of the most accomplished ministers of magic though had popular wands so these were evangeline orpington and eldridge diggory but king's cross station was actually built in 1852 during orpington's time in office it was only after its opening that the minister hit upon the idea that adding a concealed platform at king's cross station could only be accused by the witches and wizards uh, from platform nine and three quarters uh, Minister Orpington was also good friends with Queen Victoria, who never realized that Orpington was a witch the entire time. Um, but she was also believed to have illegally intervened in the magically 
Crimean War. So just like the Napoleonic Wars, um, it's said that these ministers intervened in the Crimean Wars along with people of magic, which led to concealments and obliviations. Um, Minister Orpington left in the office in 1855 and is to be regarded as one of the most accomplished ministers in British history to this day. Uh, Queen Victoria, she was alive from May 24th, 1819, also in our history, uh, died in January 22nd, 1901. She was the ancestor of William I, ancestor of Henry, uh, I guess, uh, yeah, I always say VII, so y'all can look that up. Henry, um, Henry V, uh, Henry VI, I'm sorry, Henry VI, so VII, uh, George III, the grandfather, and Elizabeth the second, who is a descendant, uh, full name Alexandria Victoria is her name. She reigned as Queen of the United Kingdom from 1837 to 1901. She was most taught to be a muggle, uh, most thought to be a muggle. Um, Evangeline Orpington uh, was her closest friend. And actually, uh, like I said, the Queen never suspected her to be a witch. Um, but Victoria was buried on, Feptim- uh, on February 4th, 1901, uh, Spavin was the minister of magic at the time and attended her funeral in a admiral's hat and spat. And actually at this point, this was the final act um, of the Wizengamot to convince him to retire because he was 147 years old at the time. So as you see too, by the way, like the wizarding lifespan for witches and wizards is much longer than humans. Uh, it's attested to that the reason why that is is because of the magical abilities. They've found ways to heal themselves longer, almost like medicine that's so far advanced to where they can live longer, which is really cool. So from here, uh, a portrait actually of Queen Victoria is hung in the abandoned old bell tower near the pitch where the Chudley Cannons practice, which, you know, Ron was a big fan of the Chudley Cannons. But uh, Victoria was a descendant of King William I and the great-great-grandmother of Queen Elizabeth II. The old bell tower uh, was investigated by Mathilda Grimblehawk at one point. Uh, her partner, uh, Gideon Horton, a Quidditch keeper of the Chudley Cannons, actually reported that a flying magical beast attacked him at the location for also another portrait of Queen Elizabeth hung there. Uh, mentioned in, And this is actually mentioned in Fantastic Beasts, uh, Cases of the Wizarding World. But next Minister of Magic for you was Priscilla DuPont. Uh, so she was Minister of Magic from 1855 to February 17th, 1858. Uh, she was born before 1838, and she was a British witch, elected only once. Uh, she developed actually a loathing for the Mughal prime minister during her time, uh, Lord Palmerston. Um, because of this, she was eventually forced to step down uh, February 17th, 1858. But it is said what was happening was there were such incidences that was reported from the Mughal prime minister where he would constantly have coins and change missing of money that was stolen. Frogs would spawn out from his pockets and jacket coat. Uh, and it's thought that's because of the feud he had with Priscilla that was causing this. Magical abilities of transfiguration 
were from Priscilla. Um, and she was uh, very known for academics as well. But uh, as far as the next uh, person that took over, so, uh, well, a little bit about Lord uh, Palmer Morrison, uh, so the Muggle Prime Minister for you. He was born October 20th, 1784, to October 18th, 1865 is when he actually died. He was the Muggle Prime Minister. Um, and he was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 1855 to 1865. October 20th, 1784 to October 18th, 1865. He was the Muggle Prime Minister um, from February 6th, 1855 to February 19th, 1858. And then again, he got reelected on June 12th, 1859 to October 1865. So you can see there was a little bit of a gap there for him. Um, Priscilla Eupont actually developed, like I said, that irrational loathing for him and attained such proportions that she ended up being forcefully to step down uh, because of the pranks that she was uh, playing on him, it is assumed. Um, uh, Dugald MacPhail was a Scottish wizard who became the Minister of Magic in 1858-1865. to he was a member of the Hufflepuff house. It was unknown when he was born, but he was born no later than 1841. He was elected twice, and he came up with the idea of mimicking the new muggle service that prov- uh, that um, was to provide underage wizards and witches with a discreet method of transportation to lead to the introduction of the night bus in 1865. So he is the one that is accredited with the night bus. Um, His overall term in office was viewed as successful by Gabriel Truman in 1991. And who he was was he welcomed the Hufflepuff first years to the basement in 1991 with a short speech that mentioned uh, Minister Dougal McPhail as one of the most notable Hogwarts students who uh, was sorted into the Hufflepuff house. So you see they say that a lot. But uh, once again, that was Dugald McPhail, who is accredited with the night bus for you. And from here, uh, so Ferris Spavin that we talked about that was at the funeral. So he was born in 1755 and was the Minister of Magic from 1865 to 1903. Um, He became the Minister of Magic at 109 years old. So you see how long their lifespan is. He was known for being the longest ever serving and most long-winded minister. He survived an assassination attempt by a centaur who took offense to the punchline that unfamous centaurs and ghosts uh, dwarf walk into a bar joke. So basically what that was... We've talked about this in Game of Thrones. It was actually said in there by Tyrion. Remember, uh, Lannister, a Baratheon, and a Stark walk into a bar. So the real joke was uh, an Irishman, a Scotsman, and an Englishman walk into a bar. Uh, So that's what that joke is. So it's just pretty cool to find it now in Harry Potter folklore. If you want to hear more about that joke, go check out our Game of Thrones episodes uh, from about a year ago. Um, And so what happened was... Um, this, uh, he was elected by the population of Great Britain and Ireland six times. Um, and he established the decree for reasonable underage sorcery restriction. So, um, 
the reason like Harry went to the hearing. All that's because of this guy. So Spavin established this, and he established it during the term of 1875 when he was in office. The decree made it illegal for underage wizards to do magic outside of school. And uh, this, uh, the Ministry of Magic, uh, was able to detect breaches of the decree by the means of tracing. In the late 19th century, the Mughal government made plans to actually flatten the leaky cauldron. So here the leaky cauldron's behind again, right? Um, and Ferris Spavin made a seven-hour speech in order um, in the wizard gamut uh, on why the leaky cauldron could not be saved <laughs> to try to get rid of it. And still, it still stands, right? Um, but during the course of his tremendous speech, however, the wizarding community rallied and performed a mass memory charm. Uh, some say, although it has never been conclusively proven, that the imperious curse was used on him. Um, additionally, actually, uh, several Muggle town planners also claim to have seen it used. But the Leaky Cauldron is now accommodated in revised plans uh, for new roads. So they built all these new roads that were there, uh, which actually uh, was the cherished road that it's on. Um, and he wanted it just demolished and bulldozed down. <laughs> but because of that, they actually used concealment charms. Some even claim the imperious curse uh, in order to make him agree with it. But And then now it still stands to this day. But his secretary actually presented him with a note describing developments of uh, the plan of the roads. Uh, Spavin's term was also notable for introducing reforms to the game of Quidditch as well and the commotion they originated. On the night of June 21st, 1884, the Department of Magical Games and Sports decreed the institutionalization of the stooging penalty in Quidditch. Uh, this announcement caused widespread discontent among the British Quidditch players and fans who demonstrated profusely at the Ministry of Magic headquarters. Uh, this assembled a crowd bombarded of departmental representative with quaffles, as well as uh, what they were doing was they threatened the stooge minister. <laughs> they threatened Spavin as a stooge himself. And they were throwing quaffles at him, as well as at the Department of Ministries, Ministry of Magic Department. Uh, the wizards from the Department of Magical Law Enforcement uh, were actually dispatched because the crowd was so reluctantly uh, in an uproar and dispersed. Um, this was not without precedent. Just uh, precedent. Uh, just over a year before, another riot had actually broken out as well in the Ministry of the Department of Magical Games and Sports that had decided to get rid of gold baskets. Uh, so remember, they used to have those big basket things that would head over that we talked about in our Quidditch history. Interesting facts, uh, which was in Sorcerer's Stone episode. And then they replaced them with the hoops. So there was actually a riot about that, too, um, because they replaced it, those, replaced it with those hoops uh, goalposts. But Spavin did attend Queen Victoria's funeral in that Admiral, Admiral Hatton Spats, at which point the whizzing gamut suggested gently to step down as Minister of Magic. 
and he was 147 years old at this time when he resigned in 1903. Uh, Stooging, just so you guys know what that is, uh, that's a foul in Quidditch. It was a tactic performed in the scoring area and actually involves a team's chasers. It was performed when two of a team's chasers actually knocked uh, the opposing team's keeper out of the way uh, that the third chaser, um, so the third chaser could score a goal easily. Uh, Stooging was originally allowed in Quidditch match- matches early on, but was eventually banned in 1884. Uh, the ban drew so much heavy criticism from fans that it is believed that opposing chasers uh, responsibly um, actually would try uh, to engage in this penalty on purpose. Um, and they would have to, you know, coaches would have to stop them from interfering to do this. But there was even a quote from fans that said, uh, I was a little boy, I was a fan, and he said, I love stooging. Me and dad like watching them. Um, keepers are flattened. I don't want to go to Quidditch anymore without stooging. And this is just a young Quidditch fan that was at the Quidditch games. But uh, the next Minister of Magic was Venusia uh, Crickerly, and she was born before 1886. No exact date is known. Uh, she did die in 1912. She was a female witch, famous Aurora, Aurora in 1903. She was the British Minister of Magic from 1903 to 1912. She was elected twice. Twice, She was considered competent and likable. She did die in op in office though following a mandrake freak accident uh gardening accident and died in office um archer evermode was born uh in before 1895 he succeeded her um no exact date is known when he was born but he was the minister of magic from 1912 to 1923 uh he was elected twice during his term the muggle world became involved in a large-scale military conflict that became known as the First World War, so World War I. Um, Evermone was responsible uh, for passing emergency legislation and forbidding wizards and wizards to get involved in an attempt to prevent mass breaches of international statute of secrecy. They did not prevent thousands of wizards from aiding muggles discreetly uh, when they could. For these actions, Minister Evermode and the Wizengamot member of Henry not Harry Potter, uh, but Henry Potter um, had public condemnation, which caused a minor stir at this time. Henry Potter, who this is, he was born before 1892. No exact date is known, but he did die before 1981. He was the paternal grandfather of James Potter and the great-grandfather of Harry Potter, Henry was born in England prior to 1892. He was the direct descendant of Hardwina Lolanth Potter, and his mother was a member of the Fleamont family. It was his mother's dying wish that Harry preserved her maiden name, and so he named his son Fleamont, uh, who was James's dad, Harry's grandfather. Um, he served as a member of the Wizengamot, from 1913 to 1921 because of his outspoken words though of Archer Evermode's discussion uh, and decision to forbid wizarding community from being involved in World War I and his outspoken pro-muggle views 
were the chief reasons the Potter family was actually excluded from the Sacred 28. Um, it is actually rumored that Harry was named after him because Henry's friends always called him Harry growing up. So now that you know that. Uh, Hardwin Potter was the eldest son of Lonfied Stickholm. Uh, upon his father's death, he inherited a stable sum of gold, as did six siblings. Hadwin married Lolanth Purvel of Godric's Hollow. Lolanth was the granddaughter of Ignatius Purvel, who inherited the Cloak of Invisibility. Since there was no heirs in this generation, she told Hardwin that by tradition in her family, possession of the cloak was kept secret. He respected the wishes, and then from then on, the cloak was passed down uh, from the eldest child to each new generation in the Potter family. So you see, this really came from Harry's mother's side, is where the, well, not Harry's mother's side, but it really came from like one of Harry's great, 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 far great grandmothers. Um, so really that would be, if you're looking at it, uh, so if Henry Potter is James's grandfather and Lolanth Potter is James's grandmother. So what it is is the great. Yeah, so it's Harry's great grandmother is who is respond responsible for getting Harry the invisibility cloak because it was Harry's great great grandfather that the cloak was passed down, you know, way down the line, right? Lolanth Purvel uh, was an English witch and granddaughter of Ignatius Purvel, described as beautiful. Uh, she lived in Godric's Hollow, and due to the lack of male heirs, she was the eldest of the generation that actually inherited her grandfather's invisibility cloak. Upon her marriage to Hardwin Potter, she explained that it was a tradition that Pever the Peverell family kept the possession of the cloak a secret. Hardwin honored the tradition, and from then on, it was passed to the eldest child of each new generation of the Potter family. Henry Potter, a member of the Wizengamot from 1913 to 1921, great-grandfather of Harry Potter, was a direct descendant of Hardwin and Lolanth. So now you see how Harry got the Cloak of Invisibility. Um, Ignatius Purvel, so we're going to talk a, more about him in Deathly Hollow, so we won't get too much into him. But he was born July 12, 1214 in Godric's Hollow, uh, West Country of England, Great Britain. He was one of the three brothers mentioned in the Tale of Three Brothers, um, which is in Tales of Beetle and the Bard. He survived death's cunning schemes, and he was the owner of the Cloak of Invisibility, which passed down through his family that eventually led to Harry Potter. He is described as the wisest and the most humble of his brothers. He had two other brothers, Antioch and Cadmos, uh, and it is unknown whether he attended Hogwarts or whether or not he was homeschooled, but we will discuss him more in Deathly Hallows, so we'll save that for later. Uh, the Sacred 28. So if you didn't know what the Sacred 28 was, uh, according to author of Pure Blood Directory, wildly believed to have been cantankerous not, these were the 28 families believed to be still pure blood. They included these families, 
and the Sacred 28. The Abbott family, the Avery family, the Black family, the Bulstrode family, the Burke family, the Kirov family, the Crouch family, the Folly family, Flint family, Gaunt family, Greengrass family, Lestrange family, Longbottom family, Macmillan family, Malfoy family, Knott family, Ollivander family, Parkinson family, Pruitt family, Rozier family, Rowie family, Saloon family, Shacklebolt family, Shafiq, Shafiq family, uh, Slughorn family, uh, Travers family, Weasley family, and Yaxley family. And it also, uh, so the ones not mentioned that we haven't mentioned very much on this podcast for you. So the Burke family uh, founded Borgen and Burke shop in history and is closely related to the Black, Flint families, and Malfoy family. Uh, notable family members here are Elizabeth Burke, uh, Caractius Burke, Herbert Burke, uh, Baluna Burke, uh, Black, who actually was uh, became a Black later. So Baluna Burke, what's her maiden name? And Black uh, is the name she married into, which you can see is relating to Sirius Black. But Caractius Burke uh, was the original founder of Borgen and Burks, who was born in 1846. The Folly family, uh, mostly Hufflepuff members were here, and their most notable is the Hectow Folly Minister of Magic from 1925 to 1939. And uh, the Flint family, his most notable family members were Josephina Flint, who is Minister of Magic from 1819 to 1827. Um, Ursula Black, who is actually the wife of Phineas Negligus Black, who we've talked about Phineas Negligus before. And Marcus Flint, you know, famous for being on the Slytherin Quidditch team in the Hogwarts books uh, during late 1980s and 1990s. Um, and, of course, they are closely related to the Black family, the Bode family, the Gaunt family, the Bulstrode family, Yaxley families, and Muggle Hitchens family. The Gaunt family we will discuss on Sunday, uh, so I'll leave that for Sunday. The Greengrass family, so Astoria Greengrass was most notable here. She abandoned the beliefs of most purebloods in the goal of seeing a more tolerant world. Uh, she actually had refusal to believe that muggles were scum and refused to raise her children that way. She is actually uh, the daughter-in-law of Lucius and Narcissa Malfoy, so Draco's wife in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Uh, she was actually a maledictus, um, and uh, it led to her frail health that actually wastened her um, along in her life uh, and gave her a lot of trouble in that family. Um, she is the mother of Scorpius Malfoy, who they talk about in The Cursed Child. Uh, it is also thought that she could be related to Nagini, uh, and Nagini was part of the Greengrass family, which is why her maledictus uh, passed down to a female heir. Um, this is actually mentioned in Pottermore and Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, so you can look that up. Uh, here's a quote. It says, A story of Greengrass... Astoria Greengrass, who had gone through a similar, though less violent and frightening conversion from pure blood ideals to a more tolerant life view, and felt by Narcissa and Lucius to be something of a disappointment as a daughter-in-law, 
They had hopes. They had hopes that a girl whose family would come from the sacred 28. So you see, she wasn't exactly um, very, they weren't exactly very thrilled with her, uh, Lucius and Narcissa. But um, notable also was Daphne Greengrass, who is sorted into the Slytherin house, uh, same class as Harry Potter. Uh, she's just mentioned very lightly in passing. Um, the Knot family, uh, they allied with Voldemort during the First and Second Wizarding Wars. They seem to actually be closely related to the Malfoys. Uh, most notable is Cantankerous Knot, uh, and Cantankerous Knot is suspected as the author of the Pure Blood Directory in the 1930s. Uh, he did have a goal to keep families in pure blood lines. Um, the Rowie family was um, most in this house were Slytherin. Most notable of the following were Domocles Rowell, who is Minister of Magic from 1718 to 1726, uh, Thorteen Rowell, who is a Death Eater during the Second Wizarding War, uh, Euphema Rowell, who is the leader gu guardian of Delphini, which we talked about Delphini before on our interesting facts. She is the daughter of Voldemort and Bellatrix Lestrange. Um, Regina uh, Rowell was actually an unspeakable in 2010. And Rowena Rowell was a ministry worker during 2010, also an investigator at the Department of Mysteries. Uh, she actually saved an unspeakable from the brain room that we talked about in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. And here's a quote about that. It says, the investigator stared into the brains that accidentally were inspiring to leap on him. Uh, Rowena uh, saves the investigator is what then it just says because um, it's just mentioned briefly in passing. This actually occurred in the Calamity and she is also mentioned in Harry Potter Wizards United. The Sloon family, uh, the thought is that the line could actually be extinct. Uh, this is related to the Umbridge family. Uh, the Death Eaters uh, Sloon were notable from here. Uh, the name, first names are unknown, uh, but Umbridge is, Professor Umbridge is claiming to be related to them. Uh, the Shafiq family is believed to have an, been an active family line in the 1930s. Now it is actually believed that that family is actually extinct as well. Um, the Shafiq family member uh, that is most notable. Uh, first name is still unknown, but they are mentioned in Fantastic Beast Crimes of Grindelwald and actually lived during the 1920s um, and are actually mentioned in Cantankerous Knots, Pure Blood Directory, also mentioned in Pottermore and mentioned in Fantastic Beast Crimes Against Grindelwald. So you all can look that up if you want. Um, the Travers family. So most notable was Torquil Travers, which we talked about him before. Uh, he served as the head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement in the 20th century. Uh, Travers was one of Voldemort's Death Eaters during the Second Wizarding War. Um, and like I said, we mentioned him before. He was in uh, Harry Potter and the Crimes Against uh, Grindelwald. Uh, so, Fantastic Beasts. Um, Fantastic Beasts and the Crimes Against Grindelwald. Sorry, not Harry Potter. <laughs> Harry Potter is the truth, I would say. <laughs> That's the real... That's the real franchise. But uh, the Yaxley family was most known uh, for the Slytherin house. Uh, they're related to the Black family, distantly related to the Crouch, Longbottom, and Weasley family. Most known for being Death Eaters and followers of Voldemort. 
The most notable members are Corbin Yaxley, who is a dark wizard and Death Eater born in 1970s and did not search for Voldemort after his downfall, uh, but was forgiven upon his return in 1995. Um, we will actually talk about Corbin Yaxley more as we get farther into Half-Blood Prince. Um, and he actually fought in multiple battles in the First Wizarding War and Second Wizarding Wars. Um, and later became the head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement. Uh, Lysandra Black is from here. Her maiden name was Yaxley. She actually died in 1919 or later, but she is the maternal grandmother of Arthur Weasley. Uh, she married Octorus Black II, had three children, Cheris Black, uh, Colador, and Cedrella. Uh, Cedrella was actually disowned for being a blood traitor, because she married Septimus, uh, Septimus Weasley, um, who was part of the Weasley families. He was the father-in-law of Molly Weasley and grandfather of Bill, Charlie, Percy, Fred, George, Ron, and Ginny. Uh, Alcturus Black uh, was alive from 1884 to 1959. He was the third son of Phineas Negligus Black um, and uh, Ursula Flint. He was a brother of Sirius... Um, Regulus, Cygnus, uh, and Bellina. Uh, uh, Caldonia Black, uh, she became Caldonia Longbottom, actually. She married Harfang Longbottom, who is an ancestor of Neville Longbottom. Uh, Cedrella Black became Cedrella Weasley and married Septimus Weasley and was burned off the family, tap family tra tapestry. Uh, she had three sons. One is Arthur Weasley, and then uh, Arthur Weasley actually, of course, had Ron, Fred, George, Bill, Charlie, Percy, and Jenny. So she is the grandmother of Arthur's kids, Ron, Fred, George, Bill, Charlie, Percy, and Jenny. Um, Cheris Black uh, made a name. She became Cheris Crouch, actually. She is the third uh, daughter of Octorus Black, and Lysadia Yaxley, and she is a sister of Caldora and Cedrella. She married Caspar Crouch, who had a son and two daughters, and one of them is Barty Crouch Sr., uh, is who their son is. And so she's Barty Crouch Sr.'s mom and Barty Crouch Jr.'s grandmother. Caspar uh, Crouch is the father of Barty Crouch Sr., so back to the ministers. Where were we at? So coming full circle here. Uh, so Lorcan McClord was born August 31st, 1906. He was the Minister of Magic from 1923 to 1925, and he was in the Ravenclaw House. Uh, he rose to Minister of Magic in Great Britain and Ireland in 1923 and is considered eccentric but quite talented. Uh, he often communicated by puffing smoke from the center of his wand. In 1925, he was actually forced out due to irritation with his eccentricities uh, and being sarcastic. The Daily Prophet actually reported in November 1926 the issue that Ravenclaw students were planning to honor him. Um, so he was thought very highly of. He just looked at was looked at as if he almost didn't take the job seriously enough because he was so bored because how smart he was. But Luna Lovegood actually uh, named her son after him. Um, this is actually mentioned in uh, Fantastic Beast and Where to Find Them and Pottermore in regards to Luna Lovegood. 
Um, also, he has mentioned in uh, the Wizarding World, but Hector Folly preceded, um, succeeded him. Sorry, not preceded, succeeded him, and was born before 1908. No exact date is known, but he is actually known as Flamboyant Folly. Um, he is the British Minister of Magic from 1925 to 1939, and he was voted in because he stood for the opposite of his predecessor, Lorcan uh, McLord. However, uh, he was most abulent uh, and the most unlikely politician to ever be around. He had a very flamboyant character. His term in the office coincided with the beginning of Geller Grindelwald's for the greater good, a revolution that occurred. Uh, Folly actually did not take Grindelwald's threat very seriously, and his lack of response was openly questioned. In 1926, he was actually questioned by the Daily Prophet uh, that said if he felt he was doing enough. He was reelected, um, but the consequence of not taking Gellert Grindelwald's revolution threat seriously in 1939 forced him out of office, and he was replaced uh, with more proactive uh, Leonard Spencer Moon. So Leonard Spencer Moon was the Minister of Magic from 1939 to 1948, and he was elected twice. Um, he actually began his career as a T-boy at the Department of Magical Accidents and Catastrophes and rose in the ranks uh, when he became uh, Minister of Magic following Hector Folley. He proved a sound minister overseeing a period of great international turmoil in both the Wizarding and Global Wizarding War and the Muggle World uh, uh, Second Wizarding War. Um, he was also known uh, to have maintained good working relationships with Winston Churchill as well, who is the Prime Minister. So just really cool how everything winds up relating to our folklore here. But, so Winston Churchill was born November 30th, 1874, and died January 24th, 1965 according to Harry Potter folklore, which we're not going to go too far into the folklore of us on this one. I just, what I did that I thought was really cool. So it would relate for you guys. Um, it is cool. It is. He is thought very well of in the wizarding community because actually six actors from the Harry Potter films have played Winston Churchill in other films, which is really cool. But he was a prime minister of the United Kingdom from 1940 to 1945 in 1951 to 1955, uh, May 10th, 1940 to July 26, 1945, and October 26, 1951 to April 6, 1955. And oversaw a period of great international turmoil in both global wizarding war and second world war. Ironically, six hours, uh, six actors, sorry, six hours. You got six hours left. The six actors in the Harry Potter films that have played Churchill in their careers are Robert Hardy, who actually played Cornelius Fudge. He played him in a drama. Um, David Ryle, Aphelius Dodge, also he's in Deathly Hallows, so we'll get there. 
but he played him in 2002, uh, Birdie and Elizabeth film. Um, Two Men Went to War, and also uh, a 2006 French miniseries, Lee Grant Charles is what it's called. Uh, Brennan Gleason, Alistair Moody played him in the 2009 bioptic, biopic Into the Storm. Timothy Spall, Peter Pettigrew, uh, played him in 2010 the, Spings, the King's Speech. And Gary Oldman, Sirius Black, uh, played him in 2017 The Darkest Hour. Uh, Michael Gambon, uh, Albus Dumbledore, of course, played Churchill in 2016's television series from Churchill's Secret. So he's definitely highly thought of in the wizarding world. And this is all actually mentioned in Pottermore. Um, but Descendants of the Moons, of Leonard Spencer Moon, is Lily Moon. Uh, she was in the same class as Harry Potter, also was mentioned in Sorcerer's Stone and the Philosopher's Stone, uh, just very briefly. Uh, Dennis Moon played the chaser for the 2014 New Zealand National Quidditch team, and he was the 427th Quidditch World Cup uh, he was in when he was actually ejected from the game because it said the penalty was so bad um, they had to eject him immediately, and it was on Gregorios Exenkis, uh, who was actually a referee that he attended to strike the referee uh, on his way out. Uh, the match ended when they um, actually lost. Uh, New Zealand lost 410 to 170. His manager, Charlie Baverstock, proclaimed himself mad. And then uh, it is said that he was locked in a box of Whoppers after being sent off. So if Whoppers, if you forgot what that is, is that's those African magical birds that are colored usually purple or pink. Um, and they have that high-pitched twittering song that drives a person insane. Uh, and they're actually sold with a spellbound silencing charm. And you have to have a license on the silencing charm. And it's required to be renewed monthly if you're going to own one of them. And uh, a flopper is actually featured on display at Diagon Alley. And um, the color of the flopper shows the varieties of the number that represent the number four on the runic alphabet. But they're sold at the Magical Menagerie and are always on display there is where they're at. But So with Thelmina uh, Tuft. Uh, was born uh, before 1931. She was the Minister of Magic from 1948 to 1959. She was elected twice. Uh, she was a witch who presided over a period of welcome, peace, and prosperity. She did die in office after discovering too late her allergy for Alahosti-flavored fudge um, and was succeeded by her son, Ignatius Tiff. Um, Alahosti, it comes from a hyena tree, just like kind of the animal hyena, right? Because they laugh all the time. But that's a magical tree. Uh, the leaves of the plant produced hysteria and uncontrollable laughter. The triacle produced by the glumbumble acted as an antidote. It was finely chopped alahosti leaves were used as an ingredient uh, for the laughing potion. The leaves... Uh, induced properties that could be damaged by stirring the potion vigorously following its addition to the mixture. 
they also were the main ingredient of the Alahasti drought. The name of the plant is actually derived from Alahasti, one of the 16 figures of Sikidi, uh, which is an East African uh, form of gemos, uh, gemo, geomancy, which is defined as the lightness of spirit. Glumbumble triacle is a magical substance produced by the glumbumbles uh, that induced mele- uh, melancholy in those who consumed it and used it as an antidote uh, for the hysteria produced by alakasi uh, leaves. Um, they are actually known to infest beehives and the triacle uh, could taint honey with disastrous results. Um, and they appear in Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. Clum Bumbles were Beast Class 4X. They're magical gray furry flying insect, which is native to Northern Europe. Basically, they're like bumblebees, but gray is what they are. But the Laughing Potion has a number of known ingredients. These include, uh, it's seven ingredients. It's uh, spring water, all hosty leaves, billy wig wings, uh, which is a flying magical insect, gnarl quills, puff skin hair, horseradish powder, and laughter. Um, the Laughing Potion induced the laughter in the drinker. And it was effective in defense against a banshee. So remember those banshees that scream? Um, they're almost like Medusa kind of things. We talked about them before. Like Gilderoy, Gilderoy Lockhart claimed to have fought a banshee, while the laughing potion is a defense against them. So that's pretty cool. But uh, known ingredients include quills and gnarls, and this is all mentioned in Zygmunt's Bunge's Book of Potions, which we talked about Zygmunt before. The recipe is... so. Add uh, clean spring water into your cauldron. Chop your alahosti leaves and then add them to water. Stir slowly. If you stir too fast, you damage the leaves' mouthful of properties. Um, snigger out the potion. Grind up billywig wings and add them to the cauldron. Stir slowly. Add the gnarl quills, no more, no less. Heat the mixture, then stir vigorously. Giggle at the potion. Heat the mixture once again. Shave your puff skin and scatter hair over the surface of your potion. Stir quickly and apply a high heat. Laugh loudly and uncontrollably and sprinkle horseradish powder into the potion. Stir the potion and heat for the last time. Finally, wave your wand over the cauldron to finish the potion. This appears in Wanderbook Book of Potions and Harry Potter Hogwarts Mystery. The Alahosti drought actually produces blue flames in color made from the Alahosti plant drinking it and inhaling the flames uh, that produces hysterical laughter. So inhaling the fumes, sorry. Inhaling the fumes that produces hysterical laughter. If you inhale the flames, you might burn. Bitch, you gon' burn. Excuse my language. Burn, baby, burn. I'm a disco inferno. Oops, I did it again to your heart anyways right so alahosti drought uh that produces blue flames and colors made from an alahosti plant drinking it or inhaling the fumes producing hysterical laughter this is mentioned in harry potter the trading card game actually um the agnoctus tough uh the sun was born 1942, minister of magic from 1959 to 1962. He was a hardliner, actually. They capitalized on his mother's Wim- Milna Tuts 
popularity to gain election for a single term. He promised to institute a controversial and dangerous Dementor breeding program. This guy was sick and was forced out of office in 1962. Nobby Leach actually succeeded him, um, was born before 1945, was muggle-born. He was the British Minister of Magic between 1962 and 1968, and he was the first muggle-born minister to hold office, actually. Uh, He was born into a muggle family but was trained in the magical arts. Still not sure how this happened. Uh, It's not reported. Uh, He did become the Minister of Magic for Britain and Ireland, though, and was elected just once, though. Uh, But in 1962, Leach was the first muggle born appointed to the post of Minister of Magic. Several members of the Wizen Gamut actually resigned because of this controversy. And the post, uh, they resigned from their post immediately, quit on the spot because of it, and protested the appointment. Uh, Leach is also believed to have played a role in the Quidditch World Cup, which aided to the fact that he did have people support him to get this role. And this was in 1966 and aided uh, England's win. He did deny these claims, though, uh, during his run, uh, his campaign run in 1968 due to a shady plot uh, that he actually left his post over. The plot did involve Abraxas Malfoy and Nobby contracted a serious illness. So the thought is the Malfoys poisoned him uh, because they didn't want to muggle in office. Abraxas Malfoy uh, was born before 1936 and died September 2nd, 1996. He is the father of Lucius Malfoy, godfather of Draco, and great-grandfather of Scorpius Malfoy, as mentioned in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Eugenia Jenkins uh, was born before 1951. No exact date is known. She is the British Minister of Magic from 1968 to 1975 and dealt with pure blood riots and squib riots, uh, squib rights march marches during the late 60s. Um, so, and I'll tell you what happened with those squib rights marches in just a minute. Pretty cool how this all relates to kind of nowadays and everyone wants equality, right? Because, you know, you have this whole controversy of today's episode. We're talking about the muggles and then the witches and the wizards of the ministry and then nomad that's been uh you know constantly in contradiction with each other for so long some fought for equal rights some didn't um some wanted to help each other out some didn't uh some wanted to integrate and some didn't uh, but when confronted with the rise of Voldemort she was out tested um from re-election and they deemed her inadequate to challenge uh, the squib rights marches occurred in 1968 to 1969. Actions by mass groups of squibs in favor of better rights. Uh, These marches were unsuccessful because they only sparked more pure blood riots, is why. Harold Mincham uh, was the next Minister of Magic, born before 1958. He was a British Minister of Magic from 1975 to 1980. And he was seen as a hardliner and placed even more Dementors around Azkaban. But he was unable to contain what seemed to be Voldemort's unstoppable rise of power, which is why he was removed. 
Millicent Bagnold uh, was born before 1963. We've talked about her a good bit, actually, on the Interesting Facts. Actually, on our first Interesting Facts episode, we talked about her a good bit. But she was sorted into the Ravenclaw house. Very smart. Uh, Tenure, she is most remembered uh, for taking place during Lord Voldemort's first downfall in 1981. She was born in the British Isles. Uh, During her power... Uh, as minister, um, actually, Bartimus Crouch Sr. was head of magical law enforcement. She was in power uh, on October 31st, 1981, when Voldemort led the attack on Godric's Hollow. Uh, that resulted in the murder of James and Lily Potter. That night actually followed, uh, that ter- followed, turned out to be a major upheaval of Bagnold's term in office. Uh, since the wizards up and down the country started celebrating and causing riots, uh, what happened because of Voldemort's downfall? So this was the end of the first Wizarding War, but because of the riots and celebrations, it became a super long night of large-scale breaches of the International Wizard Statue of Secrecy. Bagnold ruined her reputation because she defended these celebrations by famously stating... Uh, they had the right to party. It was also during her term of office that Igor Kakarov, Rodolphus Rebastian, Bellatrix Lestrange, Barty Crouch Jr., all of them were put into Azkaban. Uh, Sirius Black was also falsely accused during this time of killing James and Lily Potter and uh, was sent to Azkaban. Bagnold eventually retired in 1990, and it was unclear who would succeed her. So you kind of had this gap Uh, during this time of the next Minister of Magic. It was actually foretold Barnabas Crouch Sr. um, tried to run for the position, but no one wanted him to step in because he had tarnished his reputation by sending his own son to Azkaban. Albus Dumbledore had a massive support and was trying to be pushed for the role, but he refused to do it after being nominated multiple times for Minister of Magic because it was never his desire. Uh, Eventually, because of this, Cornelius Fudge took the role, uh, which we've discussed Bagnold briefly before in our interesting facts. So she has a a big role. But Cornelius Fudge, we've discussed in the books. uh, He was Minister of Magic uh, from 1990 to 1996, which now we just announced in the episode we watched Sunday. You know, he was just sacked (laughs) for his problems. Uh, Rufus Scrimmagor just took over. Uh, he is was Minister of Magic from 1996 to 1997, um, and we'll discuss him more in the books. Just know he was born uh, sometime before 1968. Next was actually Pius Thickness, uh, who was born uh, before 1980 sometime. Uh, he was the minister from 1997 to 1998. He was a Ministry of Magic official in the 1990s, He became the head of magical law enforcement during the Second Wizarding War, uh, but eventually ousted um, his regime, and uh, we are going to discuss him a lot more in the books. Uh, Later, Kingsley Shacklebolt becomes the Minister of Magic. Uh, He was born before 1960s, um, also became known as the Royal Potter Watch, um, but he was a Minister of Magic from 1998 to actually 2019. And my girl, what, what? 
Uh, Hermione Granger actually became the Minister of Magic in 2019 and is still the Minister of Magic until this day. And uh, like I said, so there's two, mini- there's two Minister of Magics, Rufus Scrimmageor and Pious Thickness, we're going to talk about later in the uh, as we get farther and farther into the books. So part two, here we are, right? So I told you today would be a long one. You got Last week you got the week off. Here we are. This is part two. Part two, way to do. Yeah, let's do this thing. So, hurricane in the West Country. So, here's a little quote, right? So, remember they thought this hurricane just came out of nowhere uh, in the West Country of where England and all that was. But it says, uh, so, so I suppose you're going to tell me who caused the hurricane in West Country too, said the Prime Minister, his temper rising with every pace he took. It was infuriating to discover the reason of all these terrible disasters and not to be able to tell the public almost worse than it was being the government's fault after all. There was no hurricane, said Fudge miserably. Excuse me, barked the prime minister. Now positively stamping up and down. Trees uprooted, roots ripped off, lampposts, tents, horrible injuries. It was Death Eaters, said Fudge. He who must not be named, his followers, and... And we suspect giant involvement. The prime minister stopped in his tracks as though he had hit an invisible wall. What involvement? Fudge grimaced. He used giants last time, which he wanted to for the ground effect, he said. And that's on page 13 of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, if you all want to look that up. Uh, But yeah, that's what happened. So if you're wondering about that hurricane... Uh, the Giants were actually under the employee of Lord Voldemort that sided with him. And uh, Muggles actually mistook this for a hurricane. Malice in the chalice, baby. Keep that train rolling. And that train keeps rolling. On down San Antone. <laughs> yeah, anyone like Johnny Cash? I was just a baby. My mom, good old son. Always drinking coffee, don't you ever play with guns, but I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. But that train keeps rolling, I hang my head and cry. Yeah, that's a little fact or melody for you. Where's Jay Nelly when you need him? Yeah, that's right. Anyways, so here we go. This is going to be our big part two section right here. You're going to find out about the Snapes in their history uh which is really cool stuff so spinner's end right remember this is where bellatrix and narcissa showed up to take the unbreakable vow with snape so spinner's end is located in cokesworth england great britain uh is the childhood home of severus snape located near the evans family childhood home which you know the evans family because lily potter um that's also uh, in the Evans family, you know, Lily Potter and Petunia Dursley grew up there. Bellatrix actually deemed it as a muggle dunghill for this area. So basically almost kind of like the slums, unfortunately, are the projects. Um, Snape grew up here with his muggle father um, and Eileen Snape. Uh, so his muggle father was Tobias Snape. His, his mother was Eileen Snape, who is a witch. Uh, They stayed here until it is presumed that his parents either moved away, most likely, or died, uh, died when they moved away. But it is thought that he purchased another home after getting 
his professor job over at Hogwarts with the salary he had and would only visit Spinner's Inn on occasion. Here is just a description from Harry Potter and the uh, Half-Blood Prince about it. So it says, uh, The chilly mist drifted over a dirty river that wound between overgrown, rubbish-strewn banks. An immense chimney, relic of disgust mill, reared up shadowy and ominous. There was no sound apart from the whisper of the black water and no sign of life. Apart from the whisper of the black water um, and down the bank of the nose, hopefully some old fish and chip wrappings in the tall grass. And this is uh, just a description of Spinner's End so you can get an idea of it. Um, they had stepped directly into the sitting room where they had a feeling of a dark padded cell. The walls were completely covered in books, most of them bound in old old brown leather and threadbare uh, sofa. An old armchair and a rickety table stood grouped together in a pool of dim light cast by a candle-filled lamp hung from the ceiling. The place had an air of neglect as though it was not usually inhabited. And this is the description of Snape's sitting room in Half-Blood Prince. So you get an idea of how, you know, kind of dingy and run down this place really was. Uh, Eileen Prince Snape. So she was born in 1930. Uh, no exact date is known, but we just know born in 1930. She was the wife of Muggle Tobias Snape and mother of Severus Snape. She was born into the Wizarding Prince family in Great Britain around 1930. She attended Hogwarts in 1941, and she was sorted into the Slytherin house. Eileen was actually captain of the school Gobstones team uh, during her fifth year and was president of the Hogwarts Gobstone Club. She married Tobias, and they moved into Spinner's End uh, that was close to the meal, mill and near a nasty smelling uh, because of the polluted river that was next to it. Severus Snape uh, grew up in a tumultuous explosive atmosphere, uh, his father and mother constantly fought and it's said his father was actually physically abusive to Eileen. Um, being too poor to take care of him, the couple actually neglected him. It is said that Severus uh, displayed magical talent before he ever received his letter to Hogwarts. Uh, when he first received his robes to Hogwarts, it said he was so poor and so embarrassed by his robes, whoever was in front of him, he tore off his clothes immediately and threw the robes on and threw the clothes in the trash. On September 1st, 1971, Eileen actually accompanies Severus to Platform 9 and 3 quarters, where he did board the Hogwarts Express, and she saw him off in his first year. So that was a good thing she did as a mother, but they weren't exactly the best parents, um, even though they did go through a lot. But Eileen, uh, is said, was skinny and unattractive in her early years and remained the same way. And actually, even worse was when she married Tobias. Uh, all she had on her face all the time was a sour face, is the way it's described. Um, Tobias Snape was born in the 20th century. He was the muggle uh, father of Severus Snape. He married pureblood Eileen Prince. Uh, Eileen did not tell him about the wizarding world before their wedding and that she was a witch. Uh, so it caused them to have major problems after their wedding. Very similar to how we talked about in the interesting facts about a month ago with McGonagall. Uh, you know, she had that first marriage and that was the problem was 
uh, well, not the first marriage, but she was proposed to, uh, and she was worried about that, which has caused the breakup, and her parents had that problem of her mother never told her father that uh, she was a witch, which then they noticed um, McGonagall had these witch powers, so very similar here, but it caused them to have problems, Eileen and Tobias, uh, when they learned uh, Tobias saw that Severus had magical ability, and he learned Eileen kept this lie from him the entire time that she was a witch, um, and he was mentally and physically abusive towards her. Um, Eileen was actually disowned by the Prince family because of marrying Tobias, who was a muggle, and it is thought uh, that when Snape turned 21, that's when he took the rights to Spinner's End, and Tobias and Eileen actually... Uh, separated and moved out uh, the Evans family was right down the street next door uh, they were the muggle family but had some distant magical blood a muggle-born witch was Lily Evans also became Lily Potter Harry's mother and Petunia Evans was a muggle um, who was her sister Harry's aunt Petunia uh, they lived near Spinner's Inn in Cokesworth uh, sharing residence with the Snape family often Mr. and Miss Evans were actually proud of Lily for being a witch, it said, and it is even thought favored Lily over Petunia because of it. Uh, the Evans family um, is now extinct because there is no male line, and uh, Snape developed a really strong relationship with Lily uh, when she got to Hogwarts is when that started. The Unbreakable Vow, because, you know, this is what they took there. Uh, so it's a magical vow, fatal if broken. You place a wand between your hands. Uh, the incantation is still unknown. The magical contract is formed when spells are performed between two parties. If broken between either party, it will result in imminent death. Uh, the two parties must be kneeling or standing opposite of each other, clasping each other's right hands. A third party must hold their wand standing quite close to the pair holding hands and place the tip of their wand uh, standing next to each other and link their hands while having a, someone act as a witness. Then the first will ask a certain number of vows of the other whereupon each time the second accepts the term and then a thin stream of fire will be emanated uh, emitted from the witness's hand from the witness's wand i'm sorry uh, so a stream of fire will be emitted from the witness's wand weaving around the hands of the pair uh, taking the vows so they're going to say their vows to each other which will result in imminent death if they don't fulfill this and then the stream of fire with the wand that connects their hands that's being witnessed by the third party so in this case it would be Bellatrix Lestrange would be watching Narcissa and Snape, and then Snape and Narcissa would be holding the wand, and the fire would emanate around Snape and Narcissa's hands, binding them. This would cause the vow to be completed. Should one who accept the terms break any of them, once again they die. The spell itself is advanced. It's not often used by any member's uh, that are not of strict confidence because uh, the spell will not be performed properly. 
It should not be also invoked by anyone underage. However, it has been argued that the spell is not as advanced as it seems because Fred and George claim to have tried it with Ron at such a young age. So uh, now we're going to go into the few times it has been three times it has actually been most known for the practitioners. Um, and uh, there is one we're not going to mention that will occur later on, but we're not going to mention them today. But the three that are mentioning, so the previous practitioners, uh, we mentioned before one. So pre-1901 it occurred. Yusuf Kama actually made the unbreakable vow with his father to track down and kill Corvius Lestrange. Uh, this was in Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes Against Grindelwald. We discussed this before. Um, Fred and George Weasley, uh, the second ones, uh, they got Ron to try to make the unbreakable vow, who was five years old at the time. This occurred in 1986. It is described that Arthur discovered them and was as angry as he may have ever been and left a red mark on Fred's left buttocks and where it would never be the same again. Uh, luckily, however, Ron was unharmed, but he did remember the, act, the incident 11 years later. The quote from it said, Fred and George tried to get me to do it once. I was about five. I nearly did, too. I was holding hands with Fred and everything when Dad found us. Uh, so that just shows he did. they did try to make him do that. Typical Fred and George. Crazy. Um, Jacob's sibling did offer to make the unbreakable vow with Chiara uh, Lobska to ensure that they would never betray her, um, recognizing that they would die in this vow. Chiara actually refused and opted to trust him, and this was between 1984 and 1990. So a little about Chiara. She has some really cool history here with like werewolves and that sort of thing. And you know I'm a Lupine fan, Lupin. And uh, so I got to mention her a little bit because this is pretty cool. But she was um, around between September 1st, 1972 and August 31st, 1973. She attended Hogwarts. Um, she is a human werewolf. She was a witch and the only child of an arithmancer and obliviator. She was afflicted with lycanthropy during her childhood as a result of Fenir Greyback. I feel like Fenir Greyback is always the one responsible for this. Like, always. If anyone gets lycanthropy, if anyone becomes a werewolf, it's obviously because Fenir Greyback got on him. So, easy, <laughs> easily to find out who the suspect is here and who's guilty. Um, but she did attend Hogwarts and was sorted into the Hufflepuff house. Uh, Greyback tried to recruit her for his army, but was driven away by Chiara's parents. Uh, Selena, Chiara's childhood friend, ended their friendship and did not come near Chiara anymore due to the fear she accidentally witnessed one of her transformations. Chiara actually asked her mother to obliviate Selena so that she would no longer live in fear, and it is because of this, for years, Chiara actually avoided contact with people um, she attended when she attended uh, a section uh, with Penny Haywood, a class with Penny Haywood and Nymphadora Tonks. Uh, Albus Dumbledore was actually aware of her condition. Um, Snape uh, would brew the Wolfsbane potion for her in class uh, to help her control her transformations and would give it to her. 
Uh, due to the aconite uh, shortage, he was only able to brew one dose at a time, though. Uh, Chiara was interested in healing magic, actually, and had high hopes to become a healer at St. Monko's. Her um, condition actually had a lot to do with this. Uh, she actually would even volunteer at the hospital wing uh, for Madame Pomfrey during her years as a student to gain experience. At some point, leaving the Forbidden Forest, Borf, who was a wolf cub that was actually you know, found by Hagrid, ironically, of course, who else? Uh, the cub actually lived in the forest and would occasionally visit her. During a Halloween feast, she was actually attacked by Fenir Greyback and uh, the two other werewolves. The following day, uh, she met Jacob Sibling and Cecil Lee to look for the werewolves. Later that night, Chiara and Rubius Hagrid uh, showed, uh, showed Barf, is his name, to Jacob Sibling that she was a werewolf. Uh, she had not told anyone of this at Hogwarts, and it led into her second year. During her second year, she actually met Remus Lupin uh, while she was forging her potion ingredients in the Forbidden Forest, trying to create her own wolfsbane. She gave Lupin, actually, a dose of the wolfsbane, the only one she had for herself, uh, claiming it was a spare when Lupin didn't have any left and was looking for the ingredients. Later, rumors actually spread that a student was attacked by a white werewolf. Chiara did not remember engaging with anything or anyone, uh, but because of the rumors, she took it upon herself to investigate, uh, so she couldn't be assumed involved. Her and Jacob's sibling investigated the night on the last full moon in fear of answers. However, it was discovered that a student in the hospital wing, Pippa Macmillan, uh, you know, Ernie Macmillan's ancestor or relative, uh, discovered that Pippa wasn't actually um, sure it was a werewolf. So, and uh, it says she had been taken surprised by a white creature exploring the forbidden forest and discovered claw marks on her arm, leading her to believe it was a werewolf, but Pippa was too terrified to remember. So, Chiara and Jacob brewed the memory potion uh, for Pippa, and she recalled the truth. It, if it wasn't a werewolf that attacked her, it was a white hippogriff. Chiara named, um, uh, continued to investigate with Jacob uh, and had thoughts that the attacker wasn't her in, was her in the first place, actually, is what Jacob thought. Uh, when the night of the full moon came, Jacob followed Chiara because he was suspicious and thought she was the attacker. Uh, when she set off in search of Lupin. Chiara transformed without the benefit of the potion, and she attacked Jacob's sibling uh, by Jacob's sibling because of his school, his skills in dueling. But uh, the Forbidden Forest uh, was where uh, she was able to retreat and control her transformation effectively. But uh, the third year, Chiara took divination as an elective, and fourth year, uh, she was talking to Jay Kim and uh, the, at the training grounds where Jacob Sibling and Rubius Hagrid were uh, gathering crups. Uh, in the fifth year in 1988 to 1989 school year, she was talking to Hagrid in the clock tower courtyard while Jacob Sibling was dueling with Ben Copper and was talking to Jay in the Great Hall. Xenophilus Lovegood announced in a contest for the front page photo of the magical creature of the Quibbler 
a prize of 87 galleons. Ismelda Merck actually recruited some cronies, uh, so like some friends, some, you know, like almost like Crab and Goyle kind of people, uh, secret intent to hunt down uh, a werewolf um, to try to get them on the front page. So she was actually going to try to hunt down and get Chiara. But uh, she attempted to capture Chiara with the full body bind curse. Um, before the full moon to both win the prize and expose Albus Dumbledore for harboring a werewolf on campus. At the same time, ignorant to this danger, Chiara helped Jacob Sibling and Barnaby Lee uh, look for a crumplehorn snorkak, uh, which you talked about then before. Uh, she needed the money for more wolfsbane potion. As Melda uh, had a plot to thwarted by Jacob Sibling, who used the knockback jinx to push Chiara out of harm's way, and then uh, Tulip Karasu in Nymphadora Tonks in a werewolf costume is who it was, and was convincing Ismelda that there was no real werewolf in school. Jacob's sibling, Barnaby, and Chiara won the prize ultimately with a photo of a supposed moon frog, actually Sir Ribbeth, who is uh, this girl's frog <laughs> that we'll talk about in a bit, um, who is a loving eater of glow bugs and a quintaped uh, was also on the photo, which may have been uh, Tulip and Tonks in disguise. Uh, after taking the owls the same year, she was introduced uh, to Rowan Kana uh, by Jacob's sibling. They met in the Forbidden Forest with Hagrid to help Rowan uh, calm down by letting them play uh, with Barf, who is the, the wolf cub. Uh, Chiara also told Jacob's sibling that she wanted to become a healer and suggested that a career option for Jacob um, would be one to consider as a healer. And Chiara continued uh, taking divination in her sixth year. Um, Chiara, uh, Liz uh, Turtle actually spent time in the Forbidden Forest where their interaction with Barf and a mysterious white eagle owl uh, named Artemis by Liz. After Jacob's sibling was attacked by a wizard in white robes uh, near the Black Lake, which we talked about before, this leads into a lot of the cursed vaults is what this is getting into uh, during this time period. And Chiara healed the student, and uh, then, uh, which that's where this is all starting the circle of Kana here. Um, after the death of Rowan Kana at the hands of Patricia Rakepeck during the duel of the Forest Grove, uh, Chiara was invited to the meeting that established the circle of Kana, but didn't attend because something came up. After she graduated, she worked under Madame Pomfrey and healed Cedric Diggory's arm after a training incident. Chiara uh, told the Circle of Kana, be careful, and attended the second meeting. She really didn't attend, she didn't accept the agreement in the Circle of Kana right off because she was afraid someone was going to get hurt because of her transformation, is why. Uh, later, it is described that a werewolf attacked the group in the forest and it was chased off by Chiara in her in control werewolf form uh, while she could control it. Uh, Jacob sibling and Chiara discussed their latest trip into the forest in the hospital wing. Uh, Chiara noticed uh, Beatrice coming in to, uh, to help, but she did not overhear. Uh, Chiara was worried about Beatrice and she had been covering and staring Woundlessly at the petrified students for days. This actually brings up a good point, though. 
right? Like, what is a controlled form of a werewolf? Like, it must be, like, right before they go, like, full-fledged berserk, right? Like, right up, like, Lupin, you know, as he was, like, letting his pupils dilate from the moon. That's what I imagine. It's, like, right before they go berserk, they can control it, I guess. It's it's from Pottermore. I'm going to take it as it is, I guess. Um, But Jacob's sibling actually rescued Beatrice, who uh, nearly uh, drowned at the lake. And this is when they were wound up looking for the cursed vault in the Great Lake, which we talked about at Hogwarts. Remember when Durmstrang came up through that big lake um, in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. But uh, Chiara took care of her in the hospital wing. Uh, Penny and Jacob's sibling met with Chiara and Diego Kaplan in the greenhouse to discuss the plan. And both Chiara and Diego had reservations. Chiara also mentioned Fluxweed needed to be uh, picked under a full moon. Uh, they gather not grass in the greenhouse together, while Jacob's sibling and Selbit, uh, Winger actually gathered the Fluxweed under the full moon. Chiara watched over them in the shadows when they finished gathering. Chiara actually appeared uh, and hauled at them instantly on guard. Uh, Talbot pointed his wand at the werewolf, not knowing who it was. But Jacob sibling interpreted that Chiara was warning them of the danger was coming and they needed to leave. During a lecture on dream interpretation, Chiara actually commented that she already knew what nightmares meant and did not want to share them. So Chiara was very similar to almost like Harry. Like you wonder if she had some um, separate supernatural gift for divination because she kept getting these visions just like Harry did, you know, Um, or maybe she has a connection, (laughs) right? Um, But Chiara aided Jacob's sibling in researching merpeople and flourishing bots. Uh, Also uh, found a safer entry to the Great Lake for discovering the vault in the lake, cursed vault in the lake. Uh, Chiara actually found that merpeople had a love for music and thus they planned to utilize that as a peace offering. Um, And this is all during the Circle of Kana era. Uh, Pippa Macmillan was an ancestor of Ernie Macmillan, born August 31st, 1971. The memory potion. So it is very advanced. It takes two hours and 15 minutes to make. Its ingredients include mandrake, jobernal feathers, powdered sage, and uh, stewed uh, gluthanus. And um, it improves the drinker's memory by boosting their mental cognition. Uh, Jobernal feathers are feathers from jobernals, also used in truth serums. Jobernals are beast class 2X. They're small, magical, blue, speckled birds. Um, They never make noise until the moment it dies. It would release a big scream, massive, uh, gut-wrenching scream, uh, which consisted of every sound it ever heard backwards. It lives in northern Europe and North America and feeds on small insects. It has black eye color, um, but it's just a really wild bird. And then the Galanthus novellus, uh, which is that last ingredient, is just white and small species of plant used in potion making. Uh, the plant uh, of that ingredient is used in the making of the extemulo potion, uh, the strong extemulo potion, and the potent extemulo potion. 
The Extemula Potion enhanced the power of a single spell by a spellcaster. It depended on the quality of the potion. Uh, the strong Extemula Potion uh, and the potent Extemula Potion were stronger variants of uh, this potion. So then from here, you have the Extemula Potion. Um, so the strong Extemula, the Extemula Potion increased spell power for two hours. The strong Extemula Potion increased spell power for four hours. And the potent Extemula Potion increased spell power for eight hours. The Extemula Potion ingredients were Ream Blood, Granian Hair, Snowdrop, Bitterroot. Um, and the Extemulo, the strong, uh, Extemulo strong potion ingredients are Bitterroot, Snowdrop, Abraxan Hair, and Ream Blood. So what it's changing out here is the Granian Hair. So instead of Granian Hair, you have Abraxan Hair. And then in the potent Extemulo potion, you have the ingredients Bitterroot, uh, Snowdrip, Ream Blood, and Unicorn Hair. So instead of Abraxan Hair, and granian hair, now you have unicorn hair to make it even stronger for the eight hours. Bitter root is a fleshy taproot magnetic color found in North America. Uh, snowdrop is just AKA Galanthus novellus. It's just another word for it um, because it's like a, a white plant, which is why they call it snowdrop. But green blood, uh, this is really cool. Gives superhuman strength. Uh, it is the blood of a ream. It gives uh, superhuman strength for a short period of time. A ream, what that is, is found in North America. Um, they resemble an ox, extremely rare, resembling a giant ox with a golden hide. Uh, the blood can be rarely found in the market because the demand is so high. It's extremely rare to find, but if drank, will give superhuman strength for a short period of time. Uh, the memory potion is related to the forgetfulness potion, um, the Barufio's brain elixir, and the Barufio's brain elixir, which we've talked about before. Uh, the forgetfulness potion is a potion which is caused an unknown degree of memory loss in the drinker. The recipe for potions can be found in the magical drafts and potions. Uh, key ingredients include, include uh, lethe river water, mistletoe, berries and valerian sprigs which we talked about valerian sprigs before but the uses uh jacob sibling and uh perry haywood have used this uh they brewed the potion in 1986 a quote from them says i feel like i've drank a forgetfulness potion how do i do this again um from here professor snape actually taught it to his first year students in 1992 the recipe for part one is add two drops of a lithy river water to your cauldron. Uh, gently heat for 20 seconds. Add two valerian sprigs to your cauldron. Stir three times clockwise. Wave your wand. I'll leave to brew and return in 15 to 20 minutes. Part two. Add two measures of standard ingredient to the mordor. Uh, add four mistletoe berries to the mordor crush into a medium fine powder using a, the pestle add two pinches of crushed mixture to your cauldron stir five times anti-clockwise and wave your wand to complete the potion 
Uh, Barufio's brain elixir we've talked about before, so I won't go into that. Uh, Jay Kim, a little bit about him. Pretty cool guy. Super smart, loyal, good-natured friend, but he was uh, born sometime between September 1st, 1972 and August 31st, 1973. No exact date is known. He actually was part of the Hippogriff Club, so that's pretty cool, where they were all about the Hippogriffs. Um, sorted into the Gryffindor house. He was hit by a hex uh, from Marula Snide. Uh, Jacob was given detention in his fifth year for bringing banned items to Hogwarts. He gave Jacob's sibling uh, one of the items for the f uh, for free in detention, uh, where he became friends with him. Later, he became friends with Rowan Kana, uh, Tulip Kurasu, and Barnaby Lee. He actually worked with the group to try to find out uh, what spell caused Beatrice Haywood to get stuck in a portrait. The group came to the conclusion it was due to an undetectable extension charm. Uh, Jay knew about the regulations of the charm. Jay actually earned nine owls and became a founding member of Circle Kana, known to be uh, a loyal friend and good-natured, uh, but was a daring rule-breaker. His magical abilities and skill, though, were defense against the dark arts, divination, dueling, history and magic, astronomy, Healing magic, he was actually exceptional at the Epsky healing spell. He had a mastery of charms, uh, was known for the disarming charms, tickling charms, food-related charms, and freezing charm, uh, known for mastery of the dark arts, and actually was exceptional at the knockback jinx, knockback jinx, and the full-body bind curse. So this guy was super smart. Um, but the training grounds where that is located, just so you guys know, so that's a, a flat shortcut of grassy areas that's located near the Herbology Greenhouses, overlooked by the Training Grounds Tower in the Defense Against the Dark Arts Tower. Um, the Training Grounds Tower, it's a tower in Hogwarts located in the North Tower of the Library. Uh, the Charms Classroom on the Second Floor Corridor is located here. Defense Against the Dark Arts Tower is among the largest tower at Hogwarts. Um, it stands next to the Viaduct Entrance. Um, overlooking the suspension bridge, which um, the suspension bridge, guys, y'all have seen this before. Uh, Hermione Granger, remember, was talking to Harry on it in the film, uh, Emma Watson, and she said, uh, Cho couldn't take your eye, her eyes off you when they were leaving, uh, you know, Dumbledore's army that meeting, and they were walking across a bridge. But uh, that's overlooking the suspension bridge and training grounds. It has a semicircular shape. Uh, it's home to Minerva McGonagall's office on the third floor in Serpentine Corridors. The classrooms 3C and 7A are located here, along with the Lost Wand Store and Ghoul Studies classroom. A staircase runs through the center of the tower. Uh, the viaduct entrance is located on one end of the long uh, colliery. It's a large entrance room, but it's not the main entrance hall. It has very high ceilings and windows and leads to the tapestry cauldron, uh, the student lockers, and the Hogwarts crest at the floor of the school. Uh, this leads to a large wooden double doors uh, to a spiral staircase in the dungeon corridor. A list of students could be found in this room as well, as well as a portrait of Goggle Stump. Uh, the terrace is outside of this building. And like I said, the suspension bridge is a wood bridge that connects the training grounds entrance to the astronomy tower. Uh, like I said, this is where Harry, Ron, and Hermione uh, would walk here all the time. But 
the classrooms 3C and 7A. So what that is, is Defense Against the Dark Arts was actually taught in class 3C. It's located on the third floor, the Hogwarts Castle. Uh, class 7A, what that is, is Arithmancy was taught here. Uh, both were serpentine in the serpentine corridor near the staff room. What the serpentine corridor is, it's a passage on the third floor of the Hogwarts Tourist Magnus. This connected the stairway and the first floor corridor by another. Uh, Tourist Magnus, among the largest towers of a Hogwarts castle, stands next to the viaduct entrance overlooking the suspension bridge and the training grounds. Uh, it also has a lost wand section, so anyone that loses their wand can go here. Uh, that's a small room in the castle of Hogwarts located off the serpentine corridor of the Hogwarts Tourist Magnus. Uh, the Ghoul Studies classroom. So this is cool. A lot of people didn't know they had that. But they do have a Ghoul Studies classroom that's located in the Hogwarts Tourist Magnus. Uh, just off the Serpentine Corridor near Classrooms 3C uh, and near the Defense Against the Dark Arts classroom, which is Class 3C, and Classroom 7A, Arithmancy taught by the study, uh, which is near the Study of Ghouls classroom. A Krupp. So what that is, that's basically like a Jack Russell Terrier in the wizarding world, but the difference is, so they're white and brown, they're mortal, uh, do resemble a Jack Russell Terrier, but it's said by Newt's commander, the Krupp originated in the Southeast England. It closely uh, resembles a Jack Russell Terrier, except for the fact that Krupps are almost certainly a wizard-created dog. It is intensely loyal to wizards and ferocious towards muggles. It is a great scavenger eating anything from gnomes uh, to old tires. Krupp licenses may be obtained by the Department of Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures on completion of a simple test to prove that the applicant wizard is capable of controlling the Krupp in the Muggle-inhabited areas. And that was Newt's commander. Uh, the Krupp basically is a wizard-bred dog that originated in southeast England and is ferocious towards muggles and squibs. Uh, the clock tower courtyard where this is that's the cloister on the base of the clock tower of the hogwarts castle um one of the oldest parts of the castle actually and it leads to the wooden bridge on a hill of the third floor ben copper so a little bit about him he's got some really cool history there going back to jacob's sibling in that circle of kana crew um Ben Copper was born between September 1st, 1972 and August 31st, 1973 from Newcastle upon Tien. Uh, Tien is in New England, uh, so the UK. Uh, he was sorted into the Gryffindor house. A ghost actually resided in his home growing up as a child. Ben was the only one who could see it. He was tormented by Marula Snide all of his Hogwarts years, who has actually called him a mudblood. Uh, he went missing at Hogwarts from 1985 to 1986. Jacob's sibling found a note written by R in the artifact room. So remember, R is like that uh, group that was trying to recruit Death Eaters out of Hogwarts for Voldemort. Um, but it was believed to be related to Ben's disappearance. Jacob saw the note and had the black quill attached with it uh, for the with next instructions. Ben eventually found on the fifth corridor was where he was found, later known as the Icy Corridor, where the Curse Vault of Ice was. Uh, the corridor contained the Curse Vault containing ice, 
Uh, ben was freed by McGonagall and Snape, but couldn't remember how he got there and was locked in the room. Ben later assisted Jacob's sibling in finding dragon horns for Hagrid's fire-breathing potion. Jacob helped Ben uh, burn holding pace as well during this adventure. During his fourth year, he received a warning from R in a red cloak uh, that was out in the courtyard telling him uh, about the cursed vows and um, warning him to stay away from the cursed vaults. Uh, during his fifth year, he helped Jacob's sibling uh, search for R and the Cursed Vaults. Uh, during the fourth year still, so um, it was also uh, mistaken uh, when he saw this cloaked, red cloaked, hooded figure. He thought it was Sylvanius Kettleborn, which is why he followed him out there. Which Sylvanius Kettleborn, remember, he's the professor that is most known for being most injured from fire and he almost burned down uh, the Hogwarts castle from putting on that play, which we'll talk about that play in just a bit. One more time. <laughs> um, but he was telling him uh, not to look for the cursed vaults is what the warning was. Uh, but uh, the warning said death is coming at Hogwarts. The curse that binds will be removed uh, when the cursed vault is relocated. But uh, the fifth year, uh, he fought Madame Rakepeck in the Forbidden Forest. We talked about that in our first Interesting Facts episode for Harry Potter. And uh, she, uh, who defeated him, she did defeat him with the disillusionment charm to the face when he interfered in the killing blow she was about to administer to Jacob's sibling. Uh, the sixth year of Ben, during 1989 to 1990, Ben and Jacob Simling and Marula Snide went to intercept a possible meeting with Jacob and R. What happened was they were attacked by Dementors. Uh, remember we discussed this before in our first Interesting Facts episode. They were secretly controlled by Patricia Rakepeck. Uh, during the duel, Patricia apparated and cast the killing curse towards Ben, but Rowan Kana jumped in the way, sacrificing her life for him. This led to the founding of the Circle of Kana. Ben, from here, uh, became a founding member of the Circle of Kana. Uh, magical abilities and skills of Ben. Uh, he was known for charms. He actually was known for nonverbal magic, which is really cool because that's known as, like, only the top of the top can usually do that. But he was known for dueling, astronomy, defense against the dark arts, and uh, dark arts spell creation. Known for mastery of the Noxbacks Jinx. Uh, Langlocked, uh, the full body bind curse, ear shriveling curse, and expulso curse. Uh, he created and mastered the spell uh, that was from Badia Alley that was invented known as Flipatio Maxima. A more powerful version of this is the knockback, knockback jinx. Fire breathing potion. Uh, so what this is, so it makes a human breathe fire. Its ingredients are mint, valerian sprigs, fire, seed, powdered dragon horn, and lavender. But in 1985, uh, Jacob Sibling made this potion to free his dog uh, from Devil's Snare, and Professor Severus Snape actually helped him brew it to free the dog. Uh, Snape informed Jacob Sibling that the potion was highly volatile and has been known to melt flesh and bone. 
However, mint would help cool the effects because of its natural healing properties. This is also related to the dog breath potion, uh, pepper imps, and pepper breath hex. But this is all mentioned in Hogwarts Mystery is where this is at. But the dog breath potion is a potion uh, that gives off a purple hue and gives the drinker fire breath. It's mentioned in the article that it gives a drinker fire breath, but if you are looking for some poisons of dogs, uh, there is the dog bone uh, potion. So it's made from the dog bone plant, and it was used to poison wild, vicious dogs that attack witches and wizards. Uh, dog bane is Indian hemp uh, that goes in the dog bane potion. So uh, dog bane, and that's uh, smell basically uh, what it does is it has a, a smelling plant that's small that comes from it comes from shrubs stems vines uh, native to Asia Africa Europe Australia and America pepper imps uh, they breathe fire for your friends is the quote for them but they're tiny black peppermint sweets that allow the consumer to breathe fire they're sold at honeydukes and hogsmeade and they're related to the pepper breath hex uh, the pepper breath hex emits an orange light and emits a fiery hot breath. Instant scalping, uh, but dragons had no hair. Uh, pepper breath, that would probably increase a dragon's firepower, it said. And horn tongue, just what it needed to give it an extra weapon. <laughs> so you could actually uh, give this to a dragon and it increases firepower, which is really cool. But uh, that was Harry Potter actually reading that part scanning the books for hexes um, for defense against the Hothgarian Horntail and Goblet of Fire. Uh, this is also mentioned in the Dueling Club and Chamber of Secrets as well, as well as Hogwarts Mystery. But Langlock Curse, so that's the incantation of the jinx that causes one's tongue to affix the roof of their mouth. It's known to work on humans and spirits. It says... Harry aimed his wand at Peeves and said, Langlock! Uh, Peeves clutched at his throat, gulped, then swooped from the room, making obscene gestures, but unable to speak. Owing to his fault, his tongue just glued itself to the root of its mouth. Harry used it on Peeves in the hospital wing is where this occurred. Um, so it was actually invented by Severus Snape in 1970. It's unknown when it was invented, but Sirius Black did state, state about Severus, attributing to how great Severus really was. He knew more curses when he arrived at school than half the kids in their seventh year. That's really amazing. Um, during 1989 to 1990, Bill Weasley actually taught it to six-year students in a Defense Against the Dark Arts tutoring session. Uh, ben Copper actually learned it this same year and used it on Charles Weasley, Charlie Weasley. Uh, and then Harry Potter actually uses it in Half-Blood Prince, but we'll talk about that uh, later on as we get farther into these books. The Full Body Bind Curse. I know you've been wondering what this was. Uh, so it temporarily paralyzed an opponent. Uh, an example is actually Petrificus Totalis. Like, remember Hermione in Sorcerer's Stone and Philosopher's Stone. She was like, Neville, I'm really sorry about this. <laughs> Petrificus Totalis. Remember, he was like, I'll fight you. Yeah, so that's when she casted that, and that's also known as a freezing curse. But the curse can be found in Curses and Counter Curses by Venedict, uh, Venedictus uh, Viridian. Um, when used, 
The living subject of the victim's arm snapped together, and the victim falls, turning stiff like a board. However, the victim's ability to hear, see, and think actually remains intact. It can be undone by a general counterspell, um, an anti-paralysis potion, or repertoire spell. Um, but it is very different from petrification. Remember that occurred in Chamber of Secrets. It is not thought as, thought as dark magic as petrification is. Um, Hermione, like I said, used it on Neville and Sorcerer's Stone. General counter curses. An example is finite, which is used to fix minor damage from jinxes, hexes, and curses. It is thought that only the difference between finite and finite incantation is that was just another way to basically cast a spell. Uh, finite incantation is just a more straightforward way of casting the spell, where finite is more of a general uh, word to casting the spell or counter spell. Uh, Professor Flitwick also taught this in his third year of charms class in 1986, uh, the anti-paralysis potion. So that's pink in color and acts as an antidote for paralysis, including the full body bind curse. Repifor's spell, that's a healing charm that reverted minor magically induced ailments, such as paralysis and poisons. Um, it is an incantation of the untransfiguration spell. The spell is covered in a beginner's guide to transfiguration. The book actually stressed the importance of at least attempting the spell when necessary. Uh, the products of incomplete transfiguration could be dangerous covered in year two of Transfiguration classes at Hogwarts 1985. Uh, Jacob's sibling actually used a spell to untransfigure a roll of parchment that he found that connected it to R in 1986. And this appears in a Pottermore and Hogwarts mystery. But from here, so it says, incomplete transfigurations are difficult to put right, but you must attempt to do so. Leaving the head of a rabbit on a footstool is irresponsible and dangerous. Say, repifarge, and the object or the creature should return to its natural state. This is an Emmerich switch, a beginner's guide to transfiguration, uh, curses and counter curses. This is the book written by Professor Benedictus uh, Viridian, which explains the various dark charms, including jinxes, hexes, curses, as well as counter curses. Uh, Harry Potter actually saw a copy of this on sale in Flourish and Bots in his first year in Sorcerer's Stone, Philosopher's Stone in 1991. A copy was also seen on a bench in the Great Hall during 1991 Christmas Feast, uh, during the Christmas Feast of Sorcerer's Stone or the Philosopher's Stone. Um, Cover known curses are the Full Body Bind Cursed, Jelly Legs Cursed, Leg Locker Cursed, Pimple Jinx, Stick Fex Hex, Tickling Hex, Tongue Tying Curse, and Hair Loss Curse. And so just some of these that we haven't uh, really gone over before. So the Leg Locker Curse is also known, you've heard it before, you just didn't realize it, is known as Locomotive Mortis. Uh, it binds the legs of the victims together. Uh, it was taught in 1988 in Flitwick's Charms class to the fifth year students. Um, Hermione and Ron uh, learned this during their first year, and it emitted a red and purple light. Uh, the pimple jinx, uh, Fernuculus, is a dark charm that caused a person to break out in boils and pimples when it came to contact with their skin. Effects can be cured 
uh, with the boil cure potion. Harry actually used this twice in his fourth year, this curse. Uh, and it, here's a quote regarding it. It says, Goyle bellowed and put his hands to his nose, where great ugly boils were springing up. Snape examined Goyle, whose face was now resembling something that would have been in a home book of poisonous fungi. <laughs> so there's a quote for you on that. But the stick fast hex uh, stuck the target's shoes to the ground. Uh, it is related to the trip jinx, the leg tickler curse, jelly legs curse, expomize. And um, we have talked about all these, by the way, except for expomize. So just a little bit about that for you. So expomize actually binds two objects together to form a sticky substance. So it is the uh, 2579th edition of the Transfiguration today has mentioned a debate on the spell. It is related to the permanent sticking charm, uh, the sticking charm, fixing charm, and stick fast hex. Uh, the stick fast hex uh, stuck target's shoes to the ground, causing them to trip if they need to try to move. Um, and then the permanent sticking charm magically stuck one object together indefinitely. It is uh, still known that if at all the spell, it is still unknown if at all the spell can be broken and objects can be lifted. Um, known sticking charms, for instance, Serious Mother's Painting, we spoke of this before earlier this episode, episode today, and the portrait in the Prime Minister's office, Ulla Gomp. Uh, that portrait had the sticking charm on it. Uh, the sticking charm uh, stuck an object to something else. It, it is irreversible. The incantation is still unknown. Known practitioners are um, the father of Beatrix Bloxham as well. Uh, use this spell, which isn't as powerful as the permanent sticking charm that Severus Snape and Ula Gomp had on their portraits. Or, sorry, uh, aren't as... Uh, permanent as uh, Sirius Black's mother, sorry, not Severus Snape, Sirius Black's mother had on the on the portrait in 12 Grimwald's place and the Prime Minister uh, Ula Gomp, uh, Minister of Magic, had on the, on the portrait there. Um, but it is a powerful sticking charm. So Beatrix Bloxam used the spell to keep his daughter's bedroom door shut at night because uh, she walked in her sleep. Beatrix Bloxham was born in 1794 and died actually at age 116. She's actually really famous. So in 1910, she was a half-blood that wrote the Toadstool Tales, which is a famous uh, witch storytelling of children's books that were of the Tales of Beetle and the Bard. They just had alternate endings and alternate versions that were more suitable for children uh, to hear so they weren't as graphic and violent. Um, and we'll actually talk more about a lot of Tales of Beetle and the Bard uh, with the four brothers over um, when we get more towards Deathly Hallows. But she was born in 1794. She would listen to her aunt tell warlocks Harry's heart uh, to her older cousins as well as a lurid account involving her uncle Nobby. The local hag... Um, of the bouncing uh, bulbs. So keep in mind, a local hag, remember we talked about this before, that's not anything derogatory. They're actually called that. So they're ugly, um, magical creatures, mostly usually covered in warts, 
and they're not as powerful as witches or wizards. Uh, basically, like, um, remember we talked about Hansel and Gretel. It was actually a hag that was in that house that they came uh, came in contact with uh, that was trying to give them candy and eat them. But um, so the lurid account involving her uncle Nobby, uh, the local hag, uh, and the bouncing bulbs, uh, she was traumatized when she heard and was bedridden for weeks. Uh, she would suffer from sleepwalking, which her father placed a sticking charm on her bedroom door uh, when she went to bed. Beatrix actually married at one point. It is still unknown uh, what her maiden name is. and is unknown that she had any children. She is believed that Tales of Beetle Bard harms uh, children due to what is described as stories of unhealthy preoccupation with the most horrid subjects. As such, uh, she worked, reworked the tales so that the wizard and the hopping pot, which became the story of Wee Willinkins. However, she claims she was unable to think of a way to tone down the warlock's hairy heart, um, the story which deeply frightened her as a child, as she never rewrote it. Her work was published in a series of works called The Toadstool Tales, um, when released, uh, they were loathed so much by children, they were eventually banned uh, because they caused so much nausea and vomiting. Ironically, subverting her goal to create a suitable tale for children. So, ironically, she was trying to find suitable tales for children, and they hated it so much it was just removed from the shelf. Uh, so it didn't work at all. But it is thought that J.K. Rowling got this idea, actually, from the Tale of Peter Rabbit. The reason why is Toadstool Tales is thought to have stemmed from this because Beatrix wrote the Tale of Potter Rabbit, and Beatrix wrote the Toadstool Tales, which is similar. Uh, the Toadstool Tales, series of adaptations of other works written from Beatrix Blotts, Sam, uh, that contained soppy, santonized versions of other works. It was her way of purifying them so that children's innocence could enjoy them. Uh, Beatrix set out to write the series because of unwholesome characters, themes found in Tales of Beetle and the Bard that she believed were damaging for children. The Wizard and the Hopping Pot. So Beatrix's version. So one of the, it was one of the stories of the Wizarding Collection, actually in Tales of Beetle and the Bard, written by the Beetle, but her version is, so a uh, few versions of the story exist. One version is the original that describes friendly wizarding muggle relations and the other being a revised tale told after the persecution of wizards and witches by muggles in Europe during the 1400s. The story involves the legacy of an old wizard who used his magic to aid muggle villages rather than admit he was a wizard. He disguised, disguised his magic and continued to brew potions in a cauldron. On his deathbed, he left all his belongings to his son through the form of his will. His son was a non-generous, sympathetic, or anything like his father, and also lacked the superb skill in magic. After the father died, his son was forced and found uh, was forced uh, and found the pot left to him with a slipper inside. Inside with the slipper was a note from his father that read, In the fond hope, my son, that you will never need this. 
bitter for having been left nothing but uh, put from the despising muggles. The sun chose uh, closest to the door on every person who asked for his help. So he would close the door on every person that would ask for his help that would arrive at his home. The first one seeking his aid was an old woman whose daughter was plagued with warts. He closed the door on the old woman. Uh, the son hears the uh, clacking in the kitchen and sees the pot has grown a foot in a bad case of warts. The newt, uh, the next one to look for his aid, is an old man whose donkey is lost and cannot go without its market to fetch food for his starving family. The sun closes the door on him too, and the pot starts making sands sounds like donkeys a young woman uh, comes sobbing to the door hoping for a cure for a sick baby again the son ignores the pleas and shuts the door on her a few more similar incidents take place until the son finally gives up and calls the neighbors to offer them help as the people's troubles fade away the pot empties a eunuch to last out pops the mysterious slipper uh, one that uh, perfectly fits the foot of the now quiet pot and together the two walk off into the sunset so the actual version of this is um, an alternate plot which is the tales of beetle and the bard and that original story is so the wizard gets the promise of the villagers that they will not disturb its efforts to practice magic in return the wizard commands the pot to regurgitate its victims, and the pot does so, and the muggles are burped up whole, though slightly mangled. <laughs> so the whole idea with a lot of these stories is, you know, you had, like, the whole point of this episode's been, you had all this controversy that was occurring through witches, wizards, and muggles. Should they get along? Should they not get along? You know, we don't like the pureblood status. We don't like the half-blood status. Um, we don't want to be relating. We don't want to be involved in each other's causes. That causes controversy. Uh, well, what happened was, remember, during this time when these were written, a lot of it was the Salem witch trials and all the witch trials were occurring. So it was really their way of making magic, saying how magic was okay and how it was really Muggles' fault is why. But... Beatrix Bloxham's version, objecting, objecting to the story's unhealthy preoccupation with most horrid subjects, Beatrix Bloxham's final paragraph reads, Then the little golden pot danced with delight, hippity-hoppity-hop, and its tiny rosy toes. We Willingkins had cured all the dollies of their poorly tuttums, and the little pot was so happy that it filled up with the sweeties of the Willie Willikins, of the dullies but don't forget to touch your teethy pegs cried the pot um and we willingkins kissed and hugged the hopty pot and promised always to help the dollies and never to be an old grumpy wumpykins again and that actually wasn't me messing up words on that one <laughs> that actually is the way it reads because it's supposed to be funny like that uh for kids but 
unfortunately the retelling of the tale still had the same response from the wizarding children like i said uncontrollable retching and demand that the book be pulped immediately from the shelves and that's exactly what they did they pulled it from the shelf and it was never read again uh, jk rowling actually said in an interview wizard in the hopping pot is to teach kids uh to teach the young witches and wizards that they should be using the magic um altruistically so uh for the use of happiness of others is really why um but the warlock's hairy heart uh so here's the actual story so remember this is the one that wasn't rewritten in the toad store tales um by her because uh she said you know there's no way she could rework that because she was so traumatized by it the warlock's hairy heart so here's the story so it's one of the stories in Tales of Beetle and the Bard. It's the darkest of the five stories and intended to teach young wizards and witches not to dabble in the dark arts. It is also the only story that Beatrix did not rewrite in the Toadstool Tales because it traumatized her when she was a child. The warlock's ability to remove his heart from his own body um, and preserve his own life with it stored externally is actually considered a great impossibility and is definitely a fairy tale according to Albus Dumbledore because this is not possible. Um, the story goes, the main character is a handsome, skilled, young warlock who saw emotions of weakness and decides to take measures to prevent himself from ever falling in love. He does this by using the dark arts and the warlock becomes... Uh, dwelled, uh, believing himself to be envied for his perfect solitude, uh, which makes him all the more upset to overhear two servants talking about him. One servant takes pity on him, while the other, other is ridiculing him for not having found a wife. Uh, this hurts the warlock's pride hard. He decides to find a beautiful, magically talented, wealthy young maiden so that he will be envied by all. The next day, uh, he has meets with young, beautiful women. She is fascinated and slightly repelled. Ultimately, the warlock attempts to flatten her, or flatten her, flatter her, uh, with using words of this poem. The warlock takes her down to the dungeon and shows her an enchanted crystal casket, and inside lies his own beating heart. Because it was departed from the warlock's body for so long, it is actually shriveled and covered in black hair. The maiden asks the warlock to put the heart back inside his chest, which he does. The woman is so pleased that she runs forward and embraces him with all her love in her heart. However, the heart has been consumed by dark magic because of the requirement to remove it from the casket. The heart degenerated into a savage, bestial state, driving the warlock to take force of the truly human heart. The warlock tore out the maiden's heart to replace his own. However, before fulfilling the procedure and replacing his, he consumed her heart and died across the maiden's dead body with one heart in each hand. And this is found right on Pottermore. So that's definitely a, a pretty dark tale right there. But uh, the Fountain of Fair Fortune. So we've talked about this one before. Remember, this is the one I was talking about where... Uh, Sylvanius Kettleburn got in trouble for setting the Hogwarts uh, Hall on fire because they used to like used to actually um, perform this as a play every year before the Christmas holidays at Hogwarts, and then it it never got performed again after Sylvanius Kettleburn 
wound up getting those viper mandrake things uh, that basically burned, had all the eggs and burned everything down because they were supposed to be used to represent the white worm that's in here. So we've talked about this one before on the interesting facts episodes. Um, so here's what this one involves. So just so you can hear the full story on this, the fountain of fear fortune, uh, it is a fountain of strong magic. Once a year, an unfortunate is allowed the opportunity to find their way to the fountain and be in its Wotan and look for the fair fortune forever. This attracted many witches and wizards from all across the world for this reason. Here three witches fought for fortune. Asha, who is sick of a milady. Um, she was no healer. No one could heal her. Um, and she was really sick and people were trying to restore her help health but it wouldn't work Athilda who is ribbed and humiliated by a sorcerer uh, she helped the fountain she hoped the fountain would relieve her helplessness and poverty Amada she was deserted by her beloved in hopes the fountain will help cure her grief and longingness the witch decided witches decided to work together at first light a crack in the wall appears and creepers, so these are magic, magical vines that'll actually drag and kill you. Grab Asha, Althea, and Almada. Uh, it grabs them and drags them through the wall, and they are pulled into a beautiful garden. The other two women, Asha and Althea, find out that Amada actually invited a muggle competitor, Sir Luck Luckless that does not deny he has no magical abilities um, to try to pursue the fountain with them. This causes a massive feud between the three witches. Um, and on the path before them, then they see lies three challenges. So the first one is they must face a monstrous white worm that is bloated and blind and who demands proof of your pain. So after the several fruitless attempts to attack it with magic and other means fail asha's tears of frustration finally satisfy the worm and the four are allowed to pass the second is they are faced with a steep slope and are asked uh, to pray the fruit of their labors they try to make the climb of the hill but fail continuously after hours Athilda makes the climb with her hard efforts and encouragement from the rest of the group. The third challenge was they face a stream in their path and are asked to pay the treasure of their past. Um, they attempt to float across or leap across, but all their attempts fail until Amada thinks to her wand uh, to withdraw memories of her lover who abandoned her. So almost like the Pensieve, she takes the wand to her temple, takes out the memory, and the thought and puts it in the fountain. She drops them into the water of the stepping stones that appear in the water, letting the group cross the fountain. So, sorry, she doesn't drop it into the fountain, but she drops it into the river water that's in front of the fountain, so they can basically pass these gobstones to get to the fountain there. But then this is where uh, they are forced to choose who gets to bathe in the fountain to get the fortune. Asha winds up collapsing 
from exhaustion and is near death. She is in such pain she can't make it to the fountain, and she begs her three friends not to move her. Athilda quickly mixes a powerful potion in an attempt to revive her, and the concoction actually cures her, um, so she no longer needs the fountain waters. By curing Asha, Athilda realizes she has the power to cure others and a means to earn money, so she no longer needs the waters of the fountain to cure her powerlessness and poverty. The third witch, Amata, realizes that once she washed away her regret for her lover, she was able to see her for what she, she was able to see him for what he really was, cruel and faithless, and she no longer needs the fountain's waters. She turns to Sir Luckless and offers him, in turn, a fountain as a reward for his bravely, bravery. The knight, amazed at his luck, bathes in the fountain and flings himself in his rusted armor at the fountain and then bathes in the fountain. And, uh, and actually, after he gets out of the fountain, he asks for her hand and heart. Each witch achieves their dream for your cure, uh, a hapless knight, wins the knowledge of bravely, bravery. Amada, the one witch who had faith in him, realizes that she has found a man worthy of her. Worthy of her. The four set off arm in arm, and the four friends live long, happy lives, never realizing that the fountain's waters carried no enchantment at all. What an awesome story. That is fantastic. Um, it is really cool cool the illustrations actually of the fountain so the illustrations of the fountain actually showed the deathly hallows at the base of the fountain itself and an omega symbol is also at the base and the sun is actually on top of the fountain in the middle in the middle of all that is you have the planets mars jupiter mercury and saturn the meaning of this is still actually unknown and people are still wondering what this means uh, so so many people have actually looked into this today but it is rumored to be based on the fountain of allegory which is an allegory actually written by italian alchemist bernard trevison during the 15th century which is actually in our folklore so it's supposed to be based on like a real story so uh Babidi Ribbity and her cackling stump so this is the last uh, story we'll talk about in Tales of Beetle and the Bard or the Toadstool Tales um, because the other one is the Tale of Four Brothers and we're going to talk about that when we get to Deathly Hallows. But, so it's one of the earliest mentions of the Animagi uh, when Bobbity uh, turns herself into a small rabbit at will. Uh, this was published hundreds of years ago, it said, in The Wizarding World. J.K. Rowling actually said, it is a story of revenge for persecution of wizards and muggles. So the summary is, so a long time ago, really cool, I always think of Hercules. Long time ago in a faraway land, there was Hercules in the golden age. <laughs> Anyways, or uh, always think of a, in a galaxy far, far away, right? That's a little bit more relative to us here. Anyways, uh, a long time ago in a land far, far away, a king decides to keep all the magic in the world for himself. 
in order to get all the magic, he needs to gather all the witches and wizards in the world. So he forms the Brigade of Witch Hunters, hunters, armed with packs of wild dogs. But first he needs to learn how to use magic, so he calls for someone with magical abilities to teach him. But no real witches and wizards respond. However, a muggle pretends to be a wizard and offers to teach him despite not actually knowing magic. The muggle teacher uh, demands money and treasures for his services. Bobbity, the king's washerwoman, hides and watches the muggle as he pulls two things from a tree and later pretends these are wands. Uh, and there were two twigs. While the king and the muggle practitioner are practicing, they hear uh, Bobbity laughing hysterically from the cottage, and this enrages the king, who demands that the muggle uh, help him perform in front of his subjects how to show off his new abilities. The muggle tries to back out by saying he has other engagements prior, but cannot help him. But the king threatens to send the brigade of the witch hunters after him. And if anyone laughs while the king is performing, the muggle will be beheaded. The muggle heads to Bobbity's house, where he spies on her and, and finds out that she is a real witch. He asks her to help him, and if she doesn't, he will expose her. Amused, Bobbity agrees to help out the poor muggle. He tells Bobbity that she will hide in the bush tomorrow and make it seem as if the king himself can do magic. While they perform, the crowd is astonished by the disappearance of a hat and a levitating horse. Then one of the uh, momentous uh, brigade asks if uh, the king can make his dead dog return to life. The king tries, but Bobbity does nothing. Because she knows no magic can raise the dead. The crowd laughs at the king, and the king, uh, the king knows that the spell isn't working and wants the spell to work and wants to know why it's not working. The muggle points to the bush and says, a wicked witch is blocking them. Bobbity runs from the bush, and when the hounds chase after her, she disappears, leaving the dogs barking at a tree. The muggle tells the crowd that Bobbity uh, turned into a tree and that the tree must be cut down because she is an evil witch. The crowd is wild and the tree is cut down. As the crowd starts to leave, they can hear the cackling coming from the stump. Bobbity uh, tells the crowd that the real wizards and witches cannot be cut in half and that they should, be, uh, should cut the muggle in half to prove it. The muggle confesses he is a fraud and Bobbity tells them that the king is cursed and he will feel an axe stroke every time a witch or wizard is harmed. So the king makes a prompt King makes a proclamation declaring that witches and wizards are protected and that they must not be harmed. Bobbity demands the statue be built of herself to remind everyone what has been desired. The king promises it will be done and erects a statue of her made of gold. Soon after, an old rabbit appears out of a hole in a stump with a wand in its mouth revealing that Bobbity has been hiding in an animagus form and she leaves the kingdom forever. The statue of Bobbity remains on top of the stump and no witch or wizard is ever hunted in that kingdom ever again. It is actually thought 
Bobbity could be the fairy godmother of Cinderella, because Bibbity Bobbity Boo. Bibbity Bobbity Abu. Yes, Abu like Aladdin. Haha, ha, with their magical carpets. Anyways, uh, so that, and then the final tale is the tale of four brothers. And like I said, we will talk about this in Deathly Hallows. Um, so, just a little bit here of some cool facts as far as Tales of Beale and Bard and when it was written. Uh, so it actually was originally, Tales of Beetle and the Bard, was dedicated to six key people and was handwritten as a farewell to the Harry Potter series. The original editions were handwritten for six people that were really close to J.K. Rowling and the series. Uh, the book was bound in Morocco leather and was decorated with hand-chosen silver ornaments. Each silver piece represented one of five, uh, one of five stories in the book of Tales and Beetle and Bard, um, and two identified recipients were Barry Cunningham, who was Rawlings' first editor, and Arthur A. Levine, the editor for the Scholastic U.S. publisher of the Harry Potter books that received these books. There were seven copies handwritten that J.K. Rowling did not give away, and the seventh was actually auctioned off with a charm bracelet. The edition is known as the Moonstone Edition. The bid was December 13, 2007, and it was at Sotheby's in London, and it was sold to the London fine arts dealers in Hazlitt, Gooden, and Fox on behalf of the Amazon company. So Amazon... That does Amazon Prime, Amazon Shipping, them, for 1.95 million pounds. It was the highest purchase price at the time for any manuscript at that date. Uh, the money earned at the auction, uh, so for any manuscript to that date, but the money earned at that auction that Rowling uh, earned was dedicated um, and donated to the Children's Charity Voice, which is basically like St. Jude. So this was a great cause, fantastic. You know, helped all the, all the sick patients there. Um, it was decided on July 31st, 2008, that the book would be made available to the public. Um, it was because of the widespread disappointment in Potter fans that it was decided it would be released. It was released on December 4th, 2008. Um, this is what J.K. Rowling said about the book. So, when I conceived the idea of writing the Tales of Beetle and the Bard in full, I was intrigued to discover how wizarding fairy tales would differ from those told by muggle children. In the latter, uh, witches and wizards are regulated to walk on if pivotal roles within the Tales of Beetle and the Bard, they might think that magic would solve any fairy tale dilemma but it transpires that there is always somebody who can cast a more powerful curse or creature who will not yet yield to one's best enchantments. Then the intraceable and internal human predicaments of love, death, and the pursuit of happiness are not necessarily resolved any more easy by the uh, possessors of wands. So these wizarding fairy tales have much in common with their muggle counterparts. 
They exist to express human hopes and fears and to teach a lesson or two. There are, however, a few important differences. Witches tend to save themselves rather than waiting around for a man to do it, and a young wizard is warned not against the dangers and temptations of the outside world, but their own magical powers. The Tales of Beetle and the Bard is really a distillation of the themes found in the Harry Potter books, and writing it has been the most wonderful way to say goodbye as to a world I loved and lived in for 17 years. The idea came really because I wanted to thank six key people who have been very closely connected to the Harry Potter series, and these were people for whom a piece of jewelry wasn't going to cut it. So I had the idea of writing them a book just for these six people. And well, if I'm doing six, I really have to do seven and the seventh book for the cause which is close to my heart, J.K. Rowling. Uh, so back to where we were, <laughs> going back to kind of the circle of Kana here for a bit, summing that up. So as Melda Merck, she was born between September 1st, 1972 and August 31st, 1973. She was sorted into the Slytherin house in 1984 and was neglected by her parents. Um, she always actually acted out because she desired attention. She joined um, Marula Snide and Barnaby Lee in search for the cursed vaults and worked against Jacob's sibling and confronted him uh, in Tulik uh, Karasu in her third year. Ismelda fired um, Everde, Everde Statum at Jacob's sibling uh, when he uh, fairly beat Marula in a duel in her third year. Barnaby chose to save him by taking hit, taking the hit, but Ismelda showed no remorse in harming an ally. She was actually uh, assorted into Gryffindor. Um, well, she was actually um, confronted by Gryffindor Emily Tyler in her fifth year and was bullied when she stole the diary um, and allowed the courtyard which revealed her crush for Barnaby Lee as where she read the diary but Penny Hayward told Jacob's sibling about the event and eventually Ismelda friended Jacob so he would help her with the situation Ismelda to gain love back from Barnaby attempted to forcibly make him drink a love potion when Exilifus Lovegood announced a contest for the Quibbler front page photo of a magical creature on the Quibbler in the prize of 87 galleons, Ismelda hunted down werewolf Chiara Lobaska, uh, Bobaska in an attempt to win the prize. This was eventually stopped by Jacob, who used the knockback jinx on her, and Tulip Karasu and Nymphadora Tonks disguised themselves as werewolf costumes. In her sixth year, she was best friends with Beatrice Haywood. And during this year, uh, Rowan Kana was murdered and Beatrice Haywood agreed to join the Circle of Kana. So because of this, Ismelda joined as well. Her magical abilities was history and magic, potions, care for magical creatures, specifically Magi Zoology, dueling, dark arts, divination, healing magical, hearing, healing magic, which was very successful, 
at the Epsky spell. Um, charms, disarming charms, tickling charms, freezing charms, and uh, Everdy uh, Statum. So Everdy Statum actually caused a, an opponent to fly back several feet and caused a short, sharp pain, depending on the strength of the spell, but it did not cause lasting damage. So the that history in 1986 is Melda actually casted it on Jacob's sibling, but Barnaby Lee jumped in the way. In 1988, Patricia Rakepeck actually taught this spell to fifth-year students in defense against the dark arts. Draco Malfoy has actually used this spell against Harry Potter during the Dueling Club in their second year in 1992 uh, in Chamber of Secrets. Uh, here's a quote from that. It says, Harry swung his one high, but Malfoy had already started and two. His spell hit Harry so hard, he felt as though he'd been hit over their head with a saucepan. Um, Tulip Karasu uh, was born between September 1st, 1971 uh, and August 31st, 1973. So sometime in there. She was sorted into Ravenclaw in 1984. Uh, she lived a strict life and valued the rules because of her parents. Um, she had a, a strong upbringing because of their work in the Department of Magical Law Enforcement. She is one of four students that ventured into the Vault of Fear, actually, and learned about the Bogart banishing spell after encountering a Bogart that looked like Lord Voldemort. She was one of the first victims of the Third Cursed Vaults and uh, was sleepwalking. They cast the Epsky to heal her of this in the hospital wing. Uh, Tulip actually became a founding member of the Circle of Kana in her sixth year and worked with Jacob to track down R, who is recruiting Death Eaters to find the vault. Epsky is a healing spell. Uh, the incantation healed minor injuries and relieved pain. Uh, Barnaby Lee was born between September 1st, 1972 and August 31st, 1973, so sometime in there. Uh, he was sorted into the Slytherin house on September 1st, 1984. His mother and father were Death Eaters, and supported Voldemort. He was raised in a highly toxic, abusive atmosphere, actually. Uh, he often was looked after by his grandmother, so he had definitely been through a lot, um, that's for sure, uh, because of this. So he was always left uh, dark artifacts, it even says, as his toys. Shows really how messed up they were um, because of their family history. But he eventually became friends with Jacob's sibling and helped locate the Vault of Fear and uh, the vault in the Forbidden Forest as well. These are both cursed vaults. On Valentine's Day during his fourth year, Gilderoy Lockhart actually signed his new book, Voyages with Vampires, which, remember, we've talked about in Interesting Facts before. But remember, it said Harry uh, was reading the question, and it said he thought vampires had something to do with it, and it was on Voyages with Vampires, so that's where that comes from. And he learned, uh, so he actually learned the rose growth charm here, um, Barnaby went to the Forbidden Forest in pursuit of the Cursed Vault, and Charlie Weasley, Jacob's sibling, actually uh, proceeded to the Red Cap's hole to search for the rest of the arrow uh, that was found in the Vault of Fear. Uh, siblings splashed the Red Cap with Beautification Potion. This caused the, caused the Red Caps to run away, leaving Sickleworth, uh, the Niffler, 
um, free to search for the arrowhead. Eventually, the group found uh, found the arrowhead, and uh, they alerted Torvis the centaur, but were instructed by Torvis to wait for Hagrid. Barnaby eventually allowed uh, Jacob's sibling to practice the Gillimans, which, remember, we talked about the Gillimans was practiced by Harry uh, uh, with Snape in those classes and occlumency classes. Um, and this was to prepare uh, to re- uh, prepare for future battles with R is why uh, he was studying it. Barnaby was. Eventually, Barnaby helped Kettleburn, remember that burn down the hall that we've talked about before, search for a, a lost chimera. He actually wit- witnessed uh, Bedeen Alley cast newly invented spell Cascada, and he attended Bill Weasley's graduation party at the Three Broomsticks. Uh, he conducted the Frog Choir. So remember the Frog Choir that was in, I think, Chamber of Secrets, like, Bubble, bubble, toil and trouble. Yeah, that's where that was from. Um, But in one of the concerts for Professor Flitwick, he eventually became a founding member of Circle of Kana. Uh, The rose growth charm, what that is, it made rose bushes grow unusually fast-paced. They're red caps, so their skin color is green. They're related to goblins and dwarfs. Uh, They're native to northern Europe, uh, three to four feet tall, and their beast class is 3x. Um, they inhabit uh, wherever human blood resides the most and has been most bloodshed, such as dungeons, castles, holes in battlefields especially. They do attack uh, those who are last and extremely dangerous to lone muggles. Uh, witches and wizards can easily repel them, though, with charms and hexes. Uh, they can be repelled by being doused with the beautification potion. They're called red caps because they actually have red eyes and small red caps on their head. Um, Remus Lupin actually taught them in the third year in Defense Against the Dark Arts class. And uh, covered it in, it's, they're also covered in Dark Forces, a guide to self-protection. The beautification potion, what that is, is it enhances the attractiveness of the drinker's physical appearance. It changes color. Its known ingredients are fairy wings, morning dew, rose petals, ladies' mantle, ginger roots, and bloom sling skin. In the Middle Ages, uh, Maladora Grimm, a hag, uh, you know, hag, like we said, like Hansel and Gretel, so not being derogatory there. They just don't have um, the magical power on the level of witches and wizards, and they're usually ugly-looking, covered in warts, but used a beautification potion to trick a king into believing she was beautiful so he would marry her. In the 1500s, Zygmunt Budge, uh, you know, he's a big potions expert, we've talked about him before, developed his own recipe to attract women. His artificial good looks attracted muggle women, but eventually scared them away when he became old and the effects would wear off the potion before he had time to take another dose. The recipe was, uh, so you grind the wings of three fairies and add them to the cauldron. Two, stir quickly and then add morning dew. Three, stir vigorously and then heat the mixture. Four, find a single fresh uh, rose and pluck seven petals and add them to the cauldron. Five, chop the dry ladies' mantle and add them to the cauldron and stir. 
Six, add a lock of unicorn hair and stir vigorously. Seven, add powdered ginger root and then heat it up. And lastly, wave your wand over the cauldron to finish the potion. Ladies mantle, what that is is that's a small plant with fan-shaped leaves. Uh, Sicklewarth is a niffler owned by Gringotts, assigned by Patricia Rakepeck to aid her in assignments by burrowing underground in search for cursed sites and treasures, really to help them with the cursed vaults there. Uh, Torvus was a uh, centaur in the Forbidden Forest. Um, nothing was super special about him, but he did learn about the cursed vaults growing up uh, that was passed down through his ancestry and his father. Um, so Padilla Alley, so she was born between September 1st, 1972 and August 31st. 1973, no exact date is known, but she was sorted into the Ravenclaw House, a member of the Sphinx Club, so they were all about the Sphinxes there. Uh, spent most of their time making paintings, is where, how she spent most of her time. Um, and she attended Hogwarts in 1984, had a cat called Laith uh, that she painted often, joined the Circle of Kana and helped them search for the final vault. She did invent Cascada. Uh, Cascada was known as the star shower spell, actually. Uh, it was an atmospheric charm used to produce portraits, also known as the moon shower spell. Uh, Badia Ali actually created this when painting the courtyard during astronomy class. Penny Hayward. So she was born uh, sometime between September 1972 and August 13th, 1973. Uh, she was a half-blood sorted into the Hufflepuff house. Uh, she lived in Wingtown, uh, so Little Wingtown. We talked about that before. Um, but she was a follower of the Quidditch team, the Wingtown Wanderers. Uh, she attended Hogwarts in 1984 and was known for amazing academic performance, especially in potions. Uh, during Halloween one year, her and Jacob's sibling were attacked by Fenir Greyback, and actually, Albus Dumbledore saved them. In her third year, tragedy fell, and her friend Scarlet followed a werewolf under a full moon, and Penny blamed herself because uh, Scarlet died. In her fourth year, uh, she was attacked by a Dementor that was fought off by Fedora Tonks, uh, but was still uh, required the hospital wing. Remember, these were the Dementors that were sent uh, by Patricia Rapek that controlled them because uh, the attack was planned by R, uh, Penny, who was recruiting Death Eaters. Penny joined Jacob in the search for the Curse Vaults. Severus Snape considered her his best student. That shows, like, shows how great she was, how smart she was, that Severus Snape considered her his best student ever. She attempted the unlocking charm while helping the group pursue the Buried Vault, guarded by the Hungarian Horntail, I remember we talked about that in uh, the Cursed Vaults when we talked about that on our, our first Interesting Facts episode. Uh, she did help aid and fight off. Uh, she did help aid and fight off Patricia Rakepeck during her attack here. And the group tried to pursue the vault, forcing her to disapparate away. Eventually, uh, this helped infiltrate R. And she helped infiltrate R and became a founding member of the Circle of Kana. Um, eventually, 
She was one of the few founding members that ultimately defeated Patricia Rakepeck and helped break all the curses in the vaults. And she was helped uh, by Alonza Alves uh, through some of these events. So Alonza Alves is just a Brazilian witch that attended Castle Obruxo that we've talked about before, uh, which is the Brazilian school of magic that eventually helped the Circle of Kana uh, while visiting Hogwarts in exchange program, as she did. Um, Castle Lobruxo uh, was located in the Amazon rainforest. It's been around for at least a thousand years, most likely older than Hogwarts. And uh, if you listen to our other interesting facts episode, we have talked about this one in detail with the other uh, schools that are not uh, Hogwarts that are um, magic associated. But the Quidditch Wingtown Wanderers were founded in 1422. They had the red and silver meat cleaver on their robes. Uh, we've actually discussed them in the interesting facts episode of Sorcerer's Stone. So check that out there and you'll hear more about them. Emily Tyler. Uh, so she was born sometime between September uh, 1st, 1970 and August 31st, 1971. Um, she attended Hogwarts in 1986 and was sorted into Gryffindor. Bill Weasley actually fell in love with her. Emily bullied Melda Merck and in her sixth year uh, was the one that read her diary aloud in the courtyard. Um, glow bugs. So what those are is those are magical worms. Many are kept in light bulbs and are used for lighting, so nothing really special about that. Uh, Liz Tuttle is the one that owned Ribbeth, remember the frog we were talking about, uh, but was born uh, September 1st, uh, 1972, but born between September 1st, 1972 and August 31st, 1573. She was a half-blood that was sorted into the Slytherin house in 1984, owned a male frog named Ribbeth that we talked about, and became a founding member of the Circle of Kana. Sir Ribbeth was just Liz's frog. Uh, he usually fed on glow bugs. In the quintape, remember, this is what um, they were dressing up as in the werewolf costumes. But um, it's found near the Isle of Drear in the northmost tip of Scotland. It's a dangerous magical beast with, with five legs, each ending in a club foot giving it thick red-brown hair. Uh, Drear has been deemed as unplottable because Quinn Tapes actually resides there. Um, and uh, Diego Kaplan, so he was born between September 1st, 1972 and August 31st, 1973. Uh, sometime in there he was born, no known date exactly when he was born, he attended Hogwarts in 1984 and was sorted into the Hufflepuff house. He helped train Marula Snide in her early years and eventually became a founding member of Circle of Kana. Um, Fluxweed is a magical plant, a member of the Mustard family, and is used in potions for magical properties. Severus Snape actually took the Unbreakable Vow once again. So he was the third one that made the Unbreakable Vow, and he did that at Spinner's End. So coming all the way back full circle here. So this is going to lead us into our last section before we close out here. So our third section of the Interesting Facts episode. So guys, thanks for hanging with me on this one. I know it's been a long one. Uh, that's why we kind of gave you part of two, like last week off, 
so he had a little bit of a break because we knew this one was going to be a long one today. But uh, so the Inferi, this is going to lead us into our last part. So the Inferi, also known as Inferius. So what those are is those are dead bodies. They aren't living. They're just controlled by Dark Lords, um, almost like puppets, like without strings. Uh, so they're also known as Inferius. They're pale white, already dead, reanimated corpses, dead bodies reanimated by dark wizards and spells created through necromancy. So they're not alive. The only way uh, being alive and coming back from the dead, there's no magic that can do that. There's only one thing that can, and we'll talk about it much later on in these books. But that's the thing. These inferior are actually not alive. They're just doing what their master commands, just like puppets, like zombies, basically. Um, previous practitioners... In 1989, Gellert Grindelwald actually sought to create an army of Inferi. Um, the most known practitioner we're actually going to talk about later in this book, so I'm not going to get into that, but that's later in Half-Blood Prince. Just know the most known practitioner you probably already know is in uh, the book we're reading now towards the end. We'll talk about that in, in a few weeks from now, uh, a few weeks, maybe a little bit more. In 2014, it was actually rumored that the Haitian National Quidditch team was using Inferi to intimidate other teams. Uh, the rumors were they first dismissed it at the International Confederation of Wizards Quidditch Committee. However, rumors proved true when Inferi attacked crowds in 2014 at the Quidditch World Cup and people in the stands were actually devouring, getting devoured bitten uh, and ones that were tripped into the bottom of the pit of the Quidditch uh, stadium on the grass grounds were getting eaten, getting eating, getting ate by uh, corpses by the Inferi. It resulted in 300 casualties uh, resulted from shock, broken bones, bites, and disastrous, a disastrous open ceremony. Uh, one being infected with sub uh, Saban Sam a bite uh, on the Jamaican keepers uh, a Jamaican keeper uh, Kokwanda Bailey uh, was infected with Sabasan Sam Sabasan Sam so what Sabasan Sam is is uh, that's a vampiric spindle-legged creatures that are used as mascots for the Nigerian national Quidditch team um, they became crazed due to the amount of blood that was being spilt all over the field from the Inferi, where it was eating, biting, and devouring players and members from the stands. And this was in the World Cup in 2014. You know what you're thinking? Who was in the World Cup in 2014? The Quidditch World Cup, that is. That's Jamaica versus the USA. So pretty awesome. Um, it, is in, it is suspected that foul play was involved uh, because of the attack on the Inferi in 2014. The Hogwarts school nurse actually would not view students who claimed to have Sabasan Sam bites because so many people were trying to use it as an excuse to skip class. But the Haitian national Quidditch team uh, rumors it is said that they used Inferi to win the Quidditch World Cup against the United States. However, this was uh, never proven as no spell um, can bring back the dead. Uh, the Inferi, once again, 
here's a little statement here, are not alive. They're more like zombies, puppets. They're pale, foul creatures. Uh, some have no teeth. Some have sharp teeth. They're actually immune to pain and have no regard uh, for limitations. Their only limitations are what their Dark Lord desires. They can be fully um, decayed or partially decayed based on the age of the corpse. Because they are creatures of the dark arts, they dislike light and heat, and the most effective spell against them is the Firestorm spell. Uh, they are naturally enchanted by their master to avoid flames. Uh, burning flesh will ultimately destroy them. And here's a quote. The Inferius is a corpri that has been reanimated by dark wizard spells. It is not alive. It is merely used like a puppet to do wizard's bidding. They are corpses, dead bodies that have been bewitched to do a dark wizard's bidding. Inferi have not been seen in a long time. However, not since Voldemort was last powerful. He killed enough people to make an army of them, of course. And that's a little quote about him. But the most effective spell is the firestorm because it burns them alive and they run away from light, light and heat. Um, it produces a large ring of fire around the caster's wand. When the caster moves, the flame will move with them in the same direction, swirling like a lasso. It will also shoot balls of flame, so like fireballs, at individual targets if commanded by the caster. The spell, Apartus Temporis, actually will create a temporary gap of the flames to allow safe passage through. So this is how the wizard or the witch commands it so that it doesn't, they don't get hit by the flames themselves and they command the firestorm to attack the enemy. Partus Temporis is a spell that temporary parts, temporarily parts the target, created a gap wherever the caster points the wand, and the spell was effective with this firestorm spell. The most well-known practitioner of this firestorm we will talk about later on because it happens much later on in the book we're currently on, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Just a few other things wrapping us out on our last bit here. So Agapanthus, uh, those are flowers grown by Dursleys, uh, known as uh, the Lily of the Nile. So blue, purple, and funnel-shaped uh, found, um, found worldwide. Here was the quote about that. Uh, it was... It was a long time since my last visit, said Dumbledore, peering down his crooked nose at Uncle Vernon. I must say, your agopathists are flourishing. And that's on page 46 of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Um, Madame Rosemurda, just so you know a little bit about her. She was born in 1959. She was the landlady of the Three Broomsticks pub. So remember we were talking about um, all these different pubs today. So we just thought, you know, a little bit, want to know a little bit about that. And also, she worked as the bartender. Um, Dirk Cresswell. So he influenced gobbler language, actually, and was eventually murdered by snatchers. Um, so these are all people I'm going to mention that were part of the Slub Club. That what happened to them, and these are people that 
uh, Professor Slughorn mentioned that they were so great and that he knew so well. So Dirk Cresswell influenced the Gobbler language, which was the language of the goblins. He was eventually murdered by Snatchers, uh, which were bounty hunters of Voldemort, and we'll talk more about them in Deathly Hallows. And he was a member of the Slug Club. Uh, Barnabas Cruff, uh, Cuff, he was editor of the Daily Prophet at one point and was a member of the Slug Club. Ambrosius Flume, uh, she was born between 1914 and 1970 and helped run Hunting Dukes in uh, the Sweet Shop. She was a member of the Slug Club. Cosiers uh, and Harkis uh, gave, uh, gave Ambrosius Flume his first job after Slughorn introduced him. So he was just really good friends with Slughorn. Uh, Gwynog Jones, so probably the a person Slughorn loves most out of this group. She was born in 1968. She was the woman captain of the Hollyhead Harpies. We've actually talked about her a little bit during the Sorcerer's Stone. Interesting facts when we talked about Quidditch. Um, she became a member of the Slug Club and attended Hogwarts in 1979. She was the beater of the Hollyhead Harpies, and she constantly gave Slughorn free tickets to Quidditch matches. She actually threatened uh, with a cursed face to put a cursed face on the rival Brazilian manager, Jose Barboza, uh, when she called, uh, when he called the chasers of the Hollyhead Harpies talentless hags. So during the Brazil-Wales fourth quarterfinal match, she wore a t-shirt that said it should have been Haiti, uh, and she was later ended up in custody of when the Brazilian seeker Tony Silva caught the snitch with an illegal catch. Um, and she tried to curse his face with a packed stadium and had to be carried off by security and her own beaters. Uh, she was a tall, dark, uh, skinny, gorgeous witch. Uh, magical abilities were flying, transfiguration, and dark arts. The Holly had harpies. So they established were established in 1203 on Holly Island in Angsley, Wales, the Isle of Great Britain. Uh, they have dark green uh, with golden talons on their chest of the robes. Uh, they're an all-witch team. They're actually the second oldest Quidditch team in the league, um, with the exception of the Volmail Morgan being one of the known members. All of the members actually have last names beginning with the letter G, and you'll find out why Volmail Morgan doesn't have the letter G. It's because, so in 1953, they defeated the Heiderberg Harriers of Germany that lasted seven days at the end of the match with Captain Gwendolyn Morgan was proposed to by the opposing captain, Rudolf Brand. Uh, we've talked about this before, actually, on the first episode of Interesting Facts of Sorcerer's Stone that we had. Um, even though... Uh, she was concussed at the time, and um, she was proposed to by the other captain, which was like this most famous scene in all the Quidditch, uh, Quidditch matches. Ginny uh, Weasley actually played for the team in the 2000s, went on to play for the team. Uh, captain Gwynog Jones was the beater. Uh, the seeker, uh, Glenn Griffith, uh, was in 1953, was the seeker. Uh, actually caught the snitch after the seventh day match in 1953 and was born in 1936. So these are all uh, the most notable players here. 
Gwendolyn Morgan in 1953 was famous for being proposed to by the captain. Um, and then the other chaser, Wilda Griffiths, in 1998, uh, she was a witch and chaser on the Puddlemore United team, Quidditch team as well. And it's thought that she got a bribe from Puddlemore United because she also played for them too to leave the match and she didn't want to score on them because she also played for them but at one point when the Puddlemore United and the Harpies faced each other at one time she disappeared during the match and never returned uh, it is thought that she took a thousand dollar bribe from the Puddlemore United team and fled the stadium uh, this is how Volume Morgan came in because uh, she substituted in and uh, she actually is known because she was the chaser on the Hollywood Hollyhead Harpies that replaced Wilder Griffiths after she disappeared immediately during the game and she scored 10 goals in her first game. So she became really famous during that game, almost like, um, you know, uh, Tua took over <laughs> in that national championship against Georgia years ago, right? Um, but, and Jenny Weasley is known as well for being a, one of the most famous players, um, and she played for them in the 2000s. Uh, metamorph medals, what those are is those are magical objects that help the wearer metamorph. Um, they actually were scam objects that were used uh, to turn orange in the worst case, curse people uh, and would break out in tentacle-like warts. Um, and then Molly in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, remember she was reading the book uh, Healer's Helpmate. So Healer's Helpmate was published by Flourish and Bots, and it was a compilation by H. Uh, Polyntangus, uh, who was uh, leader of Elements and Magical Remedies. And um, he actually wrote the book and the chapter on cuts, bruises, and abrasions uh, for the book. He wrote uh, Healer's Helpmate in um, that chapter. But H. Polymagus, uh, it is said that it is thought that he was really a dedication is why he was developed. Because uh, all that is known is he compiled Healer's Helpmate, but it is thought he was attributed to Heath Pollington, who is actually a graphic artist that worked on Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire and Fantastic Beasts and where to find them for J.K. Rowling. So it's said that he was actually created in the Wizarding World in Pottermore Universe uh, just as a testament for, um, for uh, Heath Pollington that was a graphic artist on Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire and Fantastic Beast and Where to Find Them. And that was H. Pollingtonus. Uh, that was created for Heath Pollington, if so. Uh, the Probity uh, Probe, uh, Probity Probe, sorry, the Probity Probe was a dark detector that looks like a golden car antenna. And remember, Bill said uh, a guy had it stuck up his. Yeah, you see the idea there. Um, and then the last one before I wrap us out here. So decor detonators. Um, so those were black horn-like magical objects uh, designed to create diversions. After being um, dropped, the decoys would run a far distance away 
and would make a big bang noise, releasing clouds of black smoke, uh, drawing attention away from the user, and that's how they would make the decoy. But guys, so I know that was a long one, so thanks for sticking with us four and a half hours later, you know. Uh, that was a long one today. But um, yeah, guys, uh, just a little bit I've been getting into, right, as we're wrapping up here, uh, I've been really getting into, you know, grading comics and stuff. That's pretty cool. If you check out our Instagram, you'll see me post some cool ones up there. Uh, got into this really cool series called Noctera. Um, it's actually kind of like a creepy series, um, but the art is absolutely amazing. Uh, go check out a really cool series uh, that they actually just wrapped up today. Uh, you can get the new issue out now. It's called King in Black, the new Marvel series. Um, and what that is, is so he is probably going to be the next big bad of the MCU. So he's the king of the symbiotes. Uh, there's actually a part where he actually tears off the symbiote um, from Eddie Brock and he created the Necromancer sword. So there's only one person ever kill a Celestial and uh, that's that guy. And you can find out all that in King of Black. Um, I had no idea. I actually posted on Instagram. So, you know, I've been into the series Something is Killing, in the, Something is Killing the Children for a while. Uh, definitely check that out. That's awesome. That guy's... Uh, is about like these kids can only see the monsters, but adults can't. And um, this group and this girl uh, come in and kind of like the Men in Black or I Am Legend, uh, go take them and kill them off and kill them down. But it started off as like a series I started reading two years ago on like a whim and just kind of picked up the book that was almost like a freebie at the time. And like no one really gave it a chance. And now it's getting signed as being looked at as a, the new Netflix deal. So I have all the comics and uh, they're going for like a thousand dollars a piece online, which is just wild, which is crazy. So just some kind of cool stuff there. Yeah, guys, as I wrap us up here, you know, follow us on Instagram. You can follow me at rbrow129. So that's R-B-R-O-W-129. If you're wondering why that is, uh, my first name's Richard, actually, ironically, um, but I've always gone by Chase, which is my middle name. So that's R-B-R-O-W-129. You can follow me there. You can follow us at Official Ridiculous Patronus, uh, the Instagram there. You can follow us on Facebook at our Facebook fan page at Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. Uh, subscribe and like on YouTube. Leave us a review on Apple Podcast, guys. Those keep coming through every now and then. It really means a lot to us. Uh, we read every single one. You know, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, subscribe to us on there. Uh, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Podbean. Shout out to Podbean, those guys. They're always looking after us. Uh, shout out to Coliseum of Comics, always taking care of us. Evan over there, his wife, uh, Tony, um, Warren, those guys are fantastic. Um, but yeah, guys, you can find us anywhere. Pandora, Amazon Music, those are always great. Um, but it really means a lot, all you do for us. Um, and always following along here. And these are, we can tell you guys are the most loyal, true fans. You just lasted through a four and a half hour interesting facts episode. But that's the thing, guys. When we finish up Harry Potter, we want to be able to say we gave you guys everything. We left it all on the table for you. And this one's, you know, all yours and just enjoy the ride. 
We got an awesome episode coming up on Sunday uh, for Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, and it just gets really detailed. So I know the series kind of starts off a little bit slow in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. You know I'm a big Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix fan, but Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince can start off a little slow, but man, does it kick up, and it gets detailed and action-packed. So tune in on Sunday to our new episode that will drop at 8.45 a.m. You can get it wherever you get your podcast. Um, But with that being said, guys, you are the shields that guard the realm of fantasy from Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. This has been a ridiculous production. This is Chase signing off. (laughs) 